Here is not merely a nation, but a teeming nation of nations. Other states indicate themselves in their deputies. But the genius of the United States is not best or most in its executives or legislatures, but always most in the common people. Their deathless attachment to freedom, their self-esteem and wonderful sympathy, their good temper and open-handedness, the president's taking off his hat to them, not they to him. This is unrhymed poetry. It might be surprising for listeners of Breaking Walls to know that my professional training had nothing to do with audio. I grew up in a home with my grandparents and great-grandparents listening to the golden age of radio as a hobby and nothing more. By the time I was a sophomore at Xavier High School in Manhattan, I came to a crux. Do I attempt to live out my childhood dream of being on the pitcher's mound in Game 7 of some future World Series? Or do I focus on getting into one of the top fine art colleges in the country? I chose the latter. My high school art thesis was centered around the rhetorical question, what does it mean to me to be an American? The work I did got me into Pratt Institute in Brooklyn where I majored in design, assuming someday I'd own my own ad agency. But life had other plans. Longtime listeners of Breaking Walls know I don't usually editorialize. While I'm this program's storyteller, I'm not the story originator. That distinction belongs to men and women who gave their blood, sweat, and tears to radio through its highest highs and lowest lows. I'm not even usually an interviewer on this program. Those accolades belong to people like Chuck Shaden, Dick Bertel, John Dunning, and the entire society to preserve and encourage radio drama variety and comedy, the latter of which I'm lucky to now be a longtime member. But in thinking about this episode, Radio in the Diner, it brought me back to that high school thesis. What does it mean to any of us to be an American? Chances are, we've all had diner experiences. Mine were at places like the Del Rio, the Tiffany, the Vegas, and the still remaining Bridgeview. I sat in booths with tabletop jukeboxes eating cheeseburger deluxes after nights out at nearby bars. I spent breakfast turning down third coffee refill offers, and lunch staring out windows so tinted they might as well have been a one-way mirror. Three of those four diners I mentioned are gone, falling by the wayside thanks to changing demographics and probably offspring desires to break away from parental businesses. Herculetus of ancient Greece said that change is life's only constant. That's true in no place more than the U.S., where for better or worse, manifest destiny has permeated the mindset since the early 19th century. 
and as Horace Greeley bellowed, Go west, young man. And we simultaneously said, Welcome, and get out to fellow countrymen. We broke bread, sometimes at our own table, and sometimes not. But if we're talking about American institutions, we can all understand. The diner needs to be top of mind. Just ask Edward Hopper, and one more American institution now gone, Frank Sinatra, who once said he was for whatever got you through the night. Well, for many of us, it's been a 2 a.m. plate of scrambled eggs and a few final laughs with the remaining friends who had the stamina to last until dawn. However, if there are tears right now, they're not of sorrow, they're of joy. After all, when we begin the begin, we begin at the beginning. Breaking Walls, episode 119. My name is James Scully. Tonight, we continue our Americana miniseries by bringing our appetites to the diner. We'll hear stories from some of radio's best and center ourselves around shows taking place in establishments. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is Percy Faith's famous theme from a summer place. It's the title song from the 1959 film about star-crossed teenage lovers who reunite 20 years later, only to find their children have fallen in love under similar circumstances. It's a fitting epitaph, and now Phoenix rising for the audio industry. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers and burning gotham the new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 new york city is very much on its way go to burninggotham.com for teasers and more information you can also support these shows for as little as one dollar per month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers This is our heritage. Theodore Roosevelt's words on the destiny of America. This is a new nation based on a mighty continent of boundless possibilities. No other nation has ever been so favored. If we dare to rise level to the opportunities offered us, our destiny will be vast beyond the power of imagination. 
We must master this destiny and make it our own. For such a nation, all of us can well afford to give up all other allegiances and, high of heart, to stand a mighty and united people facing a future of glorious promise. What exactly is a diner? What makes it different from a coffee shop? The concept of the diner began in 1872 when Walter Scott from Rhode Island repurposed a horse-pulled wagon into a car that served food to people late at night. In 1887, the first rolling lunch cart was introduced by Samuel Jones. It had a few seats inside for patrons. People soon started referring to these as dining cars. Manufactured diners began in Worcester, Massachusetts, when T.H. Buckley started the Worcester Lunch Car Company. Now, one distinction between a diner and a coffee shop is that the former is traditionally factory-built and transported to the location, rather than constructed on site. These early dining cars had large wheels, overhangs, murals, letters, and frosted glass, while the interior contained basic stoves and an icebox. By the 1910s, there were two other companies manufacturing lunch cars, Tierney and O'Mahony. It was Jerry O'Mahony who manufactured the first stationary diner in 1913. Miss Duncan and I'll be lunching here. Will you pick us up in half an hour, please? Yes, sir. There'll be a seat in just a minute, but we may have to sit at different tables. Oh, well, that's... The best tables are those in the window facing the park, but you can never get a seat there. Really? Do you have 50 cents? Let's see. Uh, how do I know I'll get it back? Not to be confused, the first automat was opened on June 12, 1902 in Philadelphia by Horn and Hardart, who soon became the most prominent American automat chain. At an automat, patrons placed change in a slot, opening the door, and pulling their requested food out from behind the glass. The Automat came to New York City in 1912, becoming part of pop culture. It attracted patrons like Walter Winchell, Irving Berlin, and a host of unemployed songwriters and actors. During World War I, diners shifted catering to newly single women. They added flowers, wallpaper, and advertised their food as home-cooked meals. They flourished during Prohibition, which eliminated their primary competitors, the saloon. Yes, it's a very long time, but here we are again, Maud and Peter and I. This is the 32nd time we've wished each other Happy New Year. I remember the first New Year's. It was 1918. You sailed for France that day, Peter. I remember how bleak it was and how miserable I felt. We'd been married eight days and then you sailed for France. That was the day I met you, Maud. After his boat left, I wandered around in the rain, then went into some horrible, steamy little restaurant to have some coffee and get warm. And there you were, sitting at the table. Excuse me, would you pass the salt, please? <coughs> Thank you. Oh, anything wrong? I suspect that what you need, dearie, is a drink. Women who eat all alone in third-rate restaurants on New Year's Day should get extremely drunk. 
By the 1930s, manufacturers had streamlined the design, which now featured bullet-shaped exteriors and chrome interiors. The diner was one of the few businesses that managed to thrive during the Depression, thanks to their low-cost menu. Some began to sell beer to keep customers away from bars. By 1937, they were in every large American city. You see, I always felt that we had to work with an all-physical person. We always worked from the full person, because that's the only honest way to do it. You have, you have to have a person who lives and breathes and walks and is alive, rather than just turning on a voice. Because you could conjure up, if you really had, through imagination, anything that you wanted to be. That's why I loved it, too, because I could play opposite Jimmy Stewart, or Frederick March, or Cary Grant, or Gary Cooper, or Leslie Howard. Hmm. And on the air, I could be the most glamorous, gorgeous, tall, black-haired female you've ever seen in your life. Whatever I wish to be, mm -hmm. I could be with my voice. That was the thrilling part to me. From Hollywood, California, the Lux Radio Theater presents Herbert Marshall and Margaret Sullivan in The Petrified Forest with Eduardo Cianelli. Lux presents Hollywood. Week after week, these programs come to you, ladies and gentlemen, because week after week, you make them possible through your loyalty to our products. And the Lux Radio Theater is the means our sponsors take of showing you their gratitude. Starring for you tonight are Herbert Marshall, Margaret Sullivan, Eduardo Cianelli, and Donald Meek. You will hear from two special guests, Charles J. Smith, superintendent of the Petrified Forest National Monument, and Nick Janios, manager of that famous movie restaurant, the Café de Paris at 20th Century Fox Studios. Our music is directed by Louis Silvers, with our entire production in the hands of that master showman, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Cecil B. DeMille. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. The city of Baltimore gave us the Star-Spangled Banner. It also gave us a Star-Spangled group of theatrical personalities who assembled there just five years ago under the banner of the university players. At that time, they were an unknown collection of stage-struck youngsters intent on making good. Their leading man was Henry Fonda, and their ingenue, a little miss from Virginia named Margaret Sullivan. They remained in Baltimore 17 weeks, employed by an optimistic producer who paid them $10 a week and meals. This year, as the star of Stage Door, Margaret Sullivan returned to the same city and to the same theater, Rounding out a five-year campaign and a burst of glorious success. The Lux Radio Theater premiered on NBC's Blue Network on October 14, 1934, at 2.30 p.m. from New York. The show featured adaptations of famous films with A-list Broadway talent. It pulled a respectable 14.4 Crosley rating. It was good enough for the J. Walter Thompson agency to move it to primetime. The agency found the permanent home on CBS Mondays at 9 p.m., but the ratings fluctuated wildly. Lux tasked their agency to come up with a way to make it radio's highest-rated dramatic show, so J. Walter Thompson brought in Danny Danker to produce the broadcast. Danker's solution pumped money into the show. 
$20,000 per week price tag in 1936, equivalent to almost $400,000 today, quickly got attention and respect. Danker signed Cecil B. DeMille as frontman and paid him $2,000 per week. And on June 1, 1936, the program switched locations to Hollywood. By the fall of 1937, Lux was the third highest rated show on the air. During that season alone, the parade of weekly stars included Cary Grant, Spencer Tracy, Betty Davis, Barbara Stanwyck, Gary Cooper, Joan Crawford, Henry Fonda, Olivia de Havilland, Errol Flynn, and Bing Crosby. On November 22, 1937, three days before Thanksgiving, Lux aired an adaptation of The Petrified Forest. It guest starred Herbert Marshall and Margaret Sullivan. A little town in Arizona, on the edge of the desert. It's a few minutes before noon, and the First National Bank is the scene of the usual midday activity. There's a line at the teller's window, and a general quiet hum of conversation. Suddenly, the front door is thrown open, and four men stand in the doorway, leveling machine guns. Stand where you are, everybody! Cut that game off! Shut up! This is a stick-up, folks. Now, everybody just stand still and you won't get into no trouble. This is Duke Mantee here, and he don't take no fooling. Now mind the gap. Get that door back there. Cover the door, Hank. And don't let anyone in. Okay, Duke. Got the door, Jackie? It's in the drawer. Open up, you. I'm speaking to you, Teller. Open it up yourself. Why, you... Don't argue with him. Open it. Let me give it to this wise guy, will you? I'll take care of him myself. You got the door? Yeah. All set, Duke. Open the door, Duke. Right. Now, everybody stay right where you are. And if any wise guy's looking for trouble, remember, a tummy gun makes a noise like this. <laughs> That's just to give an idea. All right, Jackie. Let's go. Calling State Police, Arizona State Police, Duke Mantee, last reported to be heading west on Route Number 66. Be on the lookout for a blue sedan bearing Oklahoma plates. Be careful, these men are armed. Warn motorists to avoid all roads in and about petrified forest area. That is all. Warn all motorists. That's me, I guess. Maybe I should have been a little bit more careful about picking you up, brother. <laughs> if you mean I'm happy Duke Mantee, you can set your mind at rest. I'm not. No, you don't look it exactly. But you're right, of course. That was a lonesome spot back there. I hadn't had a lift for hours. Oh, well, I took a pretty good look at you first. And my honest confidence won the day. Well, I don't know as you look so pesky honest. I just figured I was a match for you. <laughs> <laughs> my name's Jones. Thank you, mine's Squire. Hitchhiking, huh? That's right. Where are you from? Well, if you mean originally, it's England. If you mean hitchhiking, I started in New York. And so? You're looking for work? Well, yes and no. What line of work are you in? None just now. I have been at times a writer. A writer, huh? Well, you won't find much to write about in these parts. Unless you happen to run into Duke Mantee. Which I sincerely hope I do not. <laughs> How far are you going, Mr. Squire? I'm not quite sure. I thought I might find some place to eat. I'm not in a hurry. Well, the nearest place I know is the Black Mesa Barbecue stand, the filling station. The Black Mesa Barbecue, mm -hmm. instructive but not illuminating. 
Just where is it? Well, I'm going within a couple of miles of there. I'll show you before I drop you. Old man Maple and his granddaughter run it. Ain't so much of a place, but, well, it's all there is. What's the sad news, Gabby? Oh, you had a hamburger, pie, and coffee. That's 50 cents for you, 55 for your friend. Hey, how come mine's more than his? Well, you asked me to put a nickel in the piano, didn't you? Uh, Ah, come on, Nick. Don't argue. Here you are, Gabby. Thanks. See you around, Gabby. Yeah. Boy, this place sure is expensive. Hey, Gabby. Hey, Gabby. Yeah, Graham. You ought to see Paula back there in the kitchen. I told her Duke Manti was heading this way, and she's... She's putting sugar in the soup and salt in the coffee. She's so scared, Oh, You oughtn't to scare her, Gramps. She's a bad enough cook as oh, it is. Oh, she's all right. When do I get my dinner, Gabby? As soon as I can get around to mm-hmm. it. Change the 20, Gabby. Lady wants a pack of cigarettes and take out for 15 gallons of gas. Hey, well, what kind of a car is out there, Bose? It ain't Duke Mantee. Well, now, maybe somebody they might have heard uh, about him. Hey, I'll take the change out, Gabby. Yeah. Don't forget to turn on the radio at 7 o'clock now and get the news. How's it going, Gabby? Oh, all right. Not so good outside. Ten customers all day. If it gets much worse, you can fire me and handle the pump yourself. Are you satisfied? Hey, Gabby, come outside and sit with me a while, will you? Not just now. I've got things to do. Oh, you've always got things to do when I want to talk to you. Well, to tell you the truth, I want to read. I haven't had a minute to myself all day. That book there? Yeah. That's it. It's nothing that would interest you. How do you know? Oh, poetry. The shapely, slender shoulders small, long arms, hands wrought in glorious... Oh. I told you you wouldn't like it. Do you? Sure. Makes me forget where I am. You sure hate this place, don't you? Well, I didn't like it much when I first came. Then why do you stay? You ought to know that, Gabby. You can call me a sap if you want to, but I'm falling in love with you. Yeah? Have you ever been in love before? No. Have you ever said you were? Why, sure, lots of times. Did they believe you? Well, certainly they did. But I couldn't fool you, Gabby. I wouldn't want to. Don't you like me at all? Sure, I like you. But not much? Some. Enough for you, not enough for me. What's the matter with me, Gabby? Nothing. Rose, while you wear that football jersey. Huh? Number 42. You're proud of it, aren't you? Well, I was pretty good back in college. Why, I... Oh, yes, I get it. I'm just another rah-rah boy, huh? No, you're all right, Bose. Say, what kind of a guy would it take to soften you up anyway? Well, I don't know if anyone could. But I do know you'd have to be different. Not the people around here. You'd have to be like... out of another world. Hmm. You're crazy, you know. Gabby, couldn't you pretend I was that fella and kiss me once? Sorry. Oh, come on, Gabby. Stop it, Bo. Oh, listen, Let baby, go. I... Good evening. Oh, good evening. Can I get something to eat? Yeah, Miss Maple here will take care of you. Thank you. You can sit down right over there. Uh, here's a bill of fare. It's kind of grimy, but the food's clean. Well, what do you think you'd like? Hamburgers, oh, steak? I'll leave that to you. Okay. Customer Bose. Bose. All right, all right. By the way, when am I? Black Mesa. And it's even more dreary than it sounds. Where are you planning to go? My plans have been uncertain. Oh, just bumming along? Mm, call it gypsying. I had a vague idea that I'd like to see the Pacific Ocean. And perhaps drown in it. But that depends. <laughs> Where'd you come from? Quite a long way, Miss Maple. Is that the name? Yeah, that's it. You're English, aren't you? you call me an American once removed. Why? I could tell you didn't belong around here. Is that a compliment? 
Sometimes I'm afraid I don't belong any place. I'll go get your dinner. There's his picture in the paper, Mr. Square. Duke Mantee. Hmm. He doesn't look very vicious, does he? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. You can't tell a killer except by his chin. Did you ever notice that? I don't think I ever saw a killer. Well, I've seen plenty of killers. You ever hear of Billy the Kid? Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Well, I knowed him well. He took a couple of shots at me once. I congratulate you on still being with us. Well, it was kind of dark, and he'd had a few drinks. I don't think he meant to do me no real harm. He just wanted to scare the pants off of me. <laughs> well, by golly, it's about time. <clears throat> Pleased to meet you, Mr. Squire. Pleased to meet you, sir. Like the soup? It's the best I ever tasted. Well, shall I pour your coffee now? Thanks. Your grandfather's a charming old gentleman. Oh, Gramps, all right. He told me he'd been missed by Billy the Kid. Yeah, he tells everybody that. Did I hear him say you're a writer? Yes. See, I haven't met many writers, except uh, Sidney Wenzel. Ever hear of him? Sorry, no, I haven't. He's with some movie company. He stopped here once on his way to the coast and handed me a lot of baloney. Said I ought to be in Hollywood. When I got there, to be sure to look him up. Gosh almighty, they never mean it. No. They never mean a thing. So you want to go into the movies? Oh, Lord, no. I want to go to Bourges. Where? Bourges, France. That's where I came from. You're not French. Partly. I was born in Bourges. But all I know about it is from the picture postcards my mother sends me. You know, they got a cathedral there. Your mother still lives there? Yeah. Dad brought us back here after the war. Mother stuck it out for a couple of years and then packed up and went back. Some people think it was cruel of her to leave me, but what could she do? She couldn't live here, and you can't blame her for that. Do you think she was cruel? Not if you don't, Miss Maple. She sends me a book every year for my birthday. She sent me this one. It's the poems of Francois Villon. Ever read it? Oh, yes. It's a wonderful portrait. Mother wrote in it, to my dear little Gabrielle. Gabrielle. That's a beautiful name. Yeah, wouldn't you know it'd get changed into Gabby by these ignorant desert rats? You you share your mother's opinion of the desert. Yes. But you find solace in the poems of Francois Villon. They get this smell of gasoline and hamburger out of my system. Huh. Would you like to read me one of those poems, Gabrielle? Mm, no. Read me the one you like best. I, I, uh, this one here. Where he wrote it about a friend who was getting married. At daybreak, when the falcon claps his wings, no fit for grief. But noble heart held high, with loud, glad noise, he stirs himself in spring, and takes his knee, and toward his lure, draws nigh. Stripped in a car followed, blue sedan bearing Oklahoma plates. There is a bullet hole in front fender, shattered glass and rear window. Mantee's girl is riding in the car with four men. Turn that thing off. wearing along. This car is dynamite, Duke. They've got us spotted, Duke. We've got to switch cars. Shut up. Let me think. Doris. Yeah, Duke? You gotta get out of this car, see? We'll pick up another one down the road, and you and Mike and Flint can drive it around till the cops get off our tails. Oh, Duke, I'd rather be in your car. I don't like to travel without you. You'll be safer, kid. As if I cared. Mean that? Don't you know it? Oh, Duke. No. You gotta switch, kid. We'll get rid of this car, too, as soon as we get a chance. We'll meet you later. Where, Duke? 
There's a filling station about ten miles past the crossroad. That slab will be your hot spot, Duke. Then we'll cool it off. We'll take over the joint and stand off an army. You meet us there, Doris. It's a joint called the Black Mesa Barbecue. That I cast love by. Now here with reason shall I chide and fret. Go on, Gabriel. Now cease to serve, but serve more constantly. This is the end for which we twain are met. waiting for the second act of The Petrified Forest starring Herbert Marshall and Margaret Sullivan, let's stop in for a moment at a house on Franklin Avenue where a, sh- a smart young secretary lives with her mother. Mother? Mother? Oh, there you are. Lux would remain one of radio's top shows for the remainder of the network's golden age. To hear more about Margaret Sullivan, tune into Breaking Walls episode number 80 or episode 94. Please get into action. This is a crisis. I'm going dancing with the boss's son. Really? And I couldn't call you because I was taking dictation. on your side? Yes. Well, what if she breaks the windows? She's got a cleaver. In that flash of lightning, I saw somebody. Is it the crazy woman? I can't tell. She's lying on the road. Can you see her? Is she still there? Too dark to see. Have to wait for the lightning. I saw her. She's getting up now. She'll kill us. She'll kill us. I grew up in the tradition of Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, H. Ryder Haggard, if you will, and, and all of the romantic, how will it come out, can she get away by midnight, people, rather than the planking chains of the purely ghost story. Not that suspense doesn't sometimes have an element of horror, or that horror doesn't have an element of suspense, but I did not specialize in the clanking chains. It would probably be with us. We've been kept a number of times since then without getting it, but now it is here. The president announced at 7 p.m. today the unconditional and an unqualified surrender of the Japanese. General Douglas MacArthur takes over as the Allied Supreme Commander and the man who will tell Emperor Hirohito just how to run Japan. General MacArthur will also accept the formal surrender for the United Nations. As World War II came to a close, one of CBS's programs of focus was radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. This was chiefly due to the man in charge, William Spear. Well, Bill, when did Suspense go on the air, and were you involved with it from the very first? I was not involved from the very first. The show was conceived by Charles Vanda, V-A-N-D-A, a a very wonderful producer and, and great old friend, in California. 
and it came about in uh, 1940 as part of a series called Forecast, which CBS put on in the summer as a replacement for the Lux Radio Theater, which used to play 46 weeks a year, but took an eight-week hiatus. And up until then, they had just filled the show with anything that the network could find, but we came up with the idea of using that eight weeks as a testing ground, a pilot, it would be called today, a ground, for new shows, one of which was Suspense, another was Duffy's Tavern. Several shows were sold and went on into uh, getting well-known in radio. Some others fell by the wayside. Suspense moved to Thursdays at 8 p.m. in December of 1943, getting sponsorship with Roma Wines. Hollywood's Best loved working on Suspense. In fact, the first Roma show starred Cary Grant, who said, if I ever do any more radio work, I want it on Suspense, where I get a good chance to act. I was very proud always that Suspense was able to corral the really distinguished actors from both sides of the country. Uh, And while it was in Hollywood, we had people like Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart Olivia de Havilland and Betty Davis and everyone, I can't think of hardly anyone of uh, note, very few anyway, who were not a part of it. I never showed anyone in my life, I have never given a script to anyone for approval. I don't believe in it. They would do it because they were able to play things that they couldn't play any other way. Jimmy Stewart would be a a murderer, or Jack Benny, Mm -hmm. a murderer, Mm -hmm. or Edward G. Robinson would be totally innocent. Boris Karloff would turn out to be completely wronged, or Peter Lorre. And there was, it wasn't, this was not always true, but there was the chance always for that variation in their lives, which hadn't existed before. The program's rating rose under Roma's first three seasons from 8.3 to 12.5. By the time Japan surrendered in August of 1945, Suspense was CBS's highest-rated Thursday show. Roughly 10 million people were now tuning in each week. However... NBC had Thursday's top seven programs, including the show running opposite Burns and Allen, who outrated suspense by three-tenths of a point. On August 16, 1945, suspense presented an episode called Short Order. Instead of the usual A-list star, this production was led by Hollywood radio regulars Joseph Kearns, Gerald Moore, Jack Moyles, and teenager Conrad Binion. Now, the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California presents... Suspense! Tonight, Roma Wines bring you Short Order, a suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Roma Wines by William Spear. Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills, is presented for your enjoyment by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A. Roma Wines, those excellent California wines that can add so much pleasantness to the way you live, to your happiness in entertaining guests, to your enjoyment of everyday meals. Yes, right now a glass full would be very pleasant, as Roma Wines bring you Short Order, A remarkable tale of... Suspense! Thank you very much. Come back. Ah. Bailey's Diner. Well, this is Mr. Bailey speaking. 
Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you're just a little late on that. Well, I hired a fry cook day before yesterday. I'm sorry I forgot to tell the newspaper to stop running that ad until this morning. I got a good man. No, no, one man's all I need. Just got a small place here. That's all right. Bye. <laughs> you see that, Johnson? You better keep on your toes. Oh, Plenty Mr. of people Bay. after your job. You're not careful, you know. Something like... Well, what's the matter? Don't you want to take my money? What? Oh, sure. Yes. Yes, of course, sir. 75 out of one. Five, one. Thank you. Okay. Hey, Johnson. Johnson, good Lord. Did you see that man's face? Yeah, you're telling me. It's enough to haunt your dreams. Kind of made you nervous, didn't he, Mr. Bailey? Well, after all, it's kind of a shock to look up and see you. Yeah, I... I noticed you hung kind of close to that gun you keep under the gas register. Oh, did I? Automatic reflex, I guess. Oh, the poor guy. I ought to be ashamed. Probably got that way in an explosion accident or something. You know? Yeah, looks like a plastic surgery job. Only some doctor like Frankenstein must have done the surgery. Yeah. Well, here you are. Enjoy it. Oh, thank you. Come back. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. He liked your cooking, too, Johnson. Two deluxe sandwiches, two coffees. You know, that's not bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> Seems to me business has been picking up ever since you started working here. Just thought you'd like to know. Thanks a lot. <laughs> you like this work, Johnson? Yeah, it'll do. The hours kind of get me sometimes, and when the rush hour starts in half an hour, I can't pretend I'll be liking it. But it's all right. Sure. Well, someday you'll have a place of your own. Be your own boss. Never get anywhere working for someone else, you know. Well, I'm doing okay now, Mr. Bailey. <laughs> yeah. You'll never go hungry for lack of a job. You're too good a cook. But your own business. Now, you take me. I'm doing well, even if I do say so. People come here to eat. All right, I see that they get them. <laughs> yeah, it makes you feel pretty good having your own place. Makes the saving and the scraping seem sort of worthwhile. You seem to get the business. Well, of course, you got a terrific location. Well, this place has a name that means something. At least I think it has. As a matter of fact, there was a man in here trying to buy it just last week. That's so? That's right. Real estate agent. Name of Sloan. Had a customer. Well, who's this customer? Oh, I don't know. But I told him I didn't want to sell. Oh, here, how about opening that refrigerator door for me, will you? Okay. Thanks. No, I'm not going to sell. Couldn't afford to. I'm not in a position to retire. The way things are, it'd be too hard to start up somewhere else. Uh-oh. Well, here we go again. Good evening. Evening? Oh, uh, yes, sir. What'll it be? Uh... Special, I reckon. Right. Coffee. Oh, good evening, sir. <laughs> Is it still chilly out? Oh, yeah, a little. Thought some of your chili would warm me up. <laughs> get it? <laughs> I get it, yeah. Chili, oh, coming yeah. up. Oh. <laughs> Bailey's place. Oh, Virginia, what's... Uh... What? What? All the windows? Well, who could possibly... Well, where were you? Well, now, why would anyone want... Oh, no, no, none of those kids would do a thing like that. They're nice kids. Yeah, hoodlums, I guess. Well, I don't, I don't know what you can do. Got no witnesses or anything? You sure it was rocks, huh? Well, I guess there's nothing you can do. Well, I, I wish I could, too, but I, I gotta stay here. All right, dear, yes, uh, all right, goodbye. Bad news, Mr. Bailey? 
darndest thing. Hoodlums or something. It just broke every window in my house. I, I don't know what to hey, think. Hey, Ed of... Bailey, this is a new kind of bread you got here? Better than usual. Oh, you like it? Yeah. Well, it costs a little more. Oh, good e Good evening. Hello? Yes, yes, sir. What'll it be? Hamburger and coffee. Right. How do you have the hamburger? Well done. Cream in the coffee? No. Black. Yeah, right. Hey. Hey, Bailey, come here a minute. Oh, yes, uh, uh, pardon me, will you, please? Hey. Did you see the face on that fellow that came in a minute ago? Yes, I did. It's pretty bad, isn't it? Bad? I'll say. Boy, I can stand a lot of things, but that gets me. Well, I've left half my meal on my plate. I was enjoying myself until that came in and sat over there. Then I didn't want anything more. Oh, that's too bad. Oh, look, don't pay. Don't no, no, no. It's not your fault. Maybe mine. Gee, how do you suppose he got that way? Oh, a burn, perhaps, or maybe some other kind of accident. I, I, I wouldn't know. Oh, boy, that's the worst I ever saw. Yeah, it's too bad, whatever happened. Sure. Well, yeah, too bad. Yes, it is. Ketchup. Okay. Here you are. What? This little paper cup, where's the bottle? Uh, uh, sorry, but ketchup's hard to get. That's all we can serve anybody. Oh, profiteers. Will there be anything more? No. Okay. Your check and pay at the desk. Thank you. Hey, Mr. Bailey. Yes, Johnson. How's your luck? Oh, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Why? The way I figure, somebody around here is sure gonna need plenty of luck. Why? I don't know. I just got a feeling. If that isn't bad luck for somebody sitting back there at the counter, I'll eat this grill here. And I never saw a recipe for making a steel grill tender. I didn't really realize the tremendous responsibility that went along with it. I just did the best I could. Mm -hmm. I was hired for other roles and different other shows because the word would go around, hey, there's some, I guess there's some new blood and uh, you might mm -hmm. want to use this fella. And, and I was hired for other roles too. In the beginning, eight, nine, ten years old, 13, 14, 15, it was very interesting and it was very educational. I mean, I got to work with adults. I was in an adult environment and what was real great, I got to hear all the funny jokes that was, <laughs> was always being told during the rehearsals. And I really became quite a storyteller and joke teller in my own right. I'd tell the other kids at school all these all these jokes and because they were kind of semi-level of, of an adult level, you know, um, either a little risque in some areas, I was quite the guy to be, uh, you know, <laughs> it did, did me great stead at school. I was very, very much in demand as the storyteller at school because I knew all mm -hmm. these jokes. How long did this period of your life last then where you were doing roles on the radio? From about mm -hmm. uh, eight till the time when I went into the service when I was 21 oh, years old. When Mr. Bailey can't rid himself of the facially scarred customer, he slowly goes out of business and then out of his mind. Well, all right. Sorry I can't help you, Mr. Bailey. Is there anything else? No, no. no be getting on then. Good night. Well, how about it? All right, all right, all right. Go sit down. Johnson, get him whatever he wants. Okay. I'm... I'm not going to answer it. I'm not... I'm, uh, Mr. Bailey, the phone, you, you busted I it. I don't care. 
Mr. Bailey, put that gun down. What are you going to do? You see. Now, look here, you. I can be pushed just so far. Now, either you get out of this place and don't come back, or as sure as I'm standing here, I'm going to pull this trigger. Go away. I'm hungry. Did you hear what I said? I hear you. Now, go now, away. Now, look, I'm going to count three. One. Go away. Two. Three. <laughs> Coffee. Black. I, I can't believe it. I shot you point blank. Good Lord! Don't forget the ketchup, you. Well, you got the lay of the place now, Mr. Tanner. You figure on making any changes? No, no, Bailey had a good thing here. That'll leave it just the way it was. We're going to hold the trade easier if we do. How did he seem when the deal was closed? I can't say. I let the lawyers handle everything. He took a beating on the deal, or I don't know you. No, not too much. I figure he recovered about 70% of his investment. He was lucky I felt sorry for him. You didn't talk to him at all, huh? No, no, no. Didn't even see him. You think he'd know you even without the makeup? Maybe. No use taking any chances, huh? Lucky I changed the bullets in that gun for blanks, or you'd be a dead pigeon. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad I foresaw that possibility. You might say I saved your life, huh? You might. Don't worry, Johnson. You'll be taken care of. I'm not worrying. I never had reason to yet, have I? No. But just for your information, Johnson, we haven't committed any crime. We didn't take this place away from Bailey by force. We didn't swindle him. I paid money right on the line for it. Just remember that. Oh, I will. Uh, customer. What? Why, it's Mr. Bailey. Oh, oh, come right in. Hello, Johnson. C come on, have a seat. Uh, oh, by the way, you know Mr. Tanner, don't you? Uh, he bought the place. Oh, I never met him. Glad to know you. A pleasure, Mr. Bailey. Well, you know, there's something uh, familiar about you. Maybe I did meet you someplace. I was in once or twice. Look the place over before I had Sloan talk to you. Oh, that's it. Uh -huh. Well, how are you making out? Uh, just getting started. I'm sort of breaking Mr. Tanner in, you might say. Hope you had better luck than I did. I was doing fine until, uh, until this man started coming in. Johnson knows the man, I mean. Bad-looking person. If he ever comes back, you just better close up and go home. That's so. Yes, that's right. He... Well, it's a wonder I have any mind left. Tell the truth, I'm not even sure I do. Uh, Mr. Bailey, would you let me fix you something while you're in here? Huh? Oh, no, thanks. I'm not hungry. Ah, uh, we got some good steak. Oh, thanks, Johnson. Not even steak, no. Okay, you're the boss. Boss? <laughs> no, not anymore. But, uh, I would like to step behind the counter one last time just to <laughs> just sort of look around. Do you, uh, you mind, Mr. Tanner? Oh, come ahead. Thanks. Well... Haven't uh, changed anything, I see. Not a thing. We intend to operate the same way you did. I think it'll pay. Thanks for the compliment. But I hope you don't draw my luck. Uh, how about some coffee, Mr. Bailey? You look tired. Coffee? Well, that sounds like a good idea. I don't mind if I do. Uh, yours is cream and sugar, right? No, no, thanks. Black this time. Mm. Say, this coffee is hot. Yeah, I... I forgot to cut the burner back, and the whole tankful is plenty hot. I have to let it cool. It's too hot for me. Well, just one last look. Things I won't be seeing for a while, I guess. Buns, butter pats, coffee cream. You know, it's funny how you miss things like these. Mustard, ketchup. 
Ketchup? Where did you get all this ketchup, Johnson? Why, uh, you... I ordered those. Ordered them? Well, so did I, but I never even got a look at a bottle of ketchup. <laughs> you're lucky. All in knowing how, I guess. Yeah, I guess you're right. I rather like it myself, you know. Nothing like ketchup, I always say. What, what was that? I... I said I'm rather fond of ketchup. Fond of ketchup? Ketchup? I think I know who you are now, Tanner. I think I know who you are. That, that face. Sure, that face. Makeup, wasn't it? That face. And Johnson had to be in on it with you, too, didn't he? Johnson helped you, didn't he, Tanner? He fixed the gun, didn't he? Well, didn't he, Tanner? Now, Bailey, wait a minute. I can explain. Now, you admit it. I'm telling the truth. Isn't that so, Tanner? Isn't that hey, so? Bailey. Hey, Bailey, stop! Oh, pull him off, Mr. Tanner. I'll get a cop. Police! Ryan! Help! Police! Coffee. You always take it black. Don't do it. There's nothing wrong, Ryan. Nothing really wrong. That's not his real face, Ryan. He likes it that way. Don't let him fool you. <laughs> what else do you want? Oh, yes, ketchup. Plenty of ketchup. Nothing like ketchup, I always say. Nothing like ketchup. Roma Wines have brought you Short Order with Joseph Kearns, Conrad Binion, and Gerald Moore as stars of tonight's study in Suspense. Suspense is produced, edited, and directed by William Spear. This is Ted Myers with a word for Roma Wines, the sponsor of Suspense. During the warm weather, nothing tastes quite so good as a tall, frosty Roma wine and soda. And as Elsa Maxwell recently remarked, serving Roma wine and soda is smart 1945-style hospitality. You'll find this delightful iced drink as refreshing as it is delicious. Yes, and Roma wine and soda is so easy to prepare. Half-fill tall glasses with Roma, California Burgundy, or Sauterne. Add ice cubes and a bit of sugar. And for a decorative touch, garnish with cherries or fruit. And for a delightful aperitif, sip delicious Roma sweet vermouth, well-chilled. Zestful, full-flavored Roma vermouth, both sweet and dry, is blended and developed with all the traditional winemaking skill of Roma wineries. Is made and bottled in the heart of California's famous vineyards, yet surprisingly low-priced. Try Roma vermouth soon, won't you? Next Thursday, you will hear Dane Clark as star of... Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills. Presented by Roma Wines, R-O-M-A. Made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. Suspense is covered in depth in several Breaking Walls episodes, including episodes 84... 95, and 98. Except for a brief period between December 1960 and June 1961, suspense would remain on CBS's airways until finally being canceled after September 30th, 1962. The theme was written by Bernard Herrmann. He uh, was a wonderful composer and a great guy, and the husband, at the time anyway, of Lucille Fletcher, who wrote Sorry, Wrong Number, and 
many of the shows that we did that were superior, superior things. No, that was part of Charlie Vanda's original show, too. I invented the phrase, tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Well, you know, the feeling that I have about radio is that when television came in, Bill, people thought it was simply another dimension of radio. But it really wasn't. It was a separate medium, and so was radio. Radio was unique, and radio, as we're talking about it tonight, is gone. Now, how do you feel about that? Is someone at fault? That's a very, very tough one. I don't know. I suppose it comes down to a criticism of networks, or uh, networks certainly had to make a choice there. You can't be both listening to the radio and looking at the television, and I suppose they put their money on the chips of television at the time. I've always wondered why it had to be, but I guess that's it. There's just so many hours in the day. Terror on the Air is an auditory escape into a different world. It's a podcast frozen in time and space where anything can happen. Be intrigued. I'm ready to confess to the crime of murder. Be in suspense. What is that sound? Be entertained. Go ahead, suck on that straw, you. Be moved to tears. No! Be transported back in time. Terror on the Air. Tune in on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, keep your volume turned up for terror. By the 1940s, the diner had carved out a niche and became a familiar sight in factory precincts, along high-volume highways where truckers hauled industrial goods from one city to another, and in downtown retail districts that supported mechanics, craftsmen, and construction workers. Few exceeded 50 feet in length, or 20 in width. Food was cooked right behind the counter. The majority of diner builders, operators, and customers were immigrants or second-generation Americans. But a funny thing was happening in American society. Participation in labor unions, the armed forces, public schools, and forms of mass leisure like bowling leagues and amusement parks blended ethnicities with a unifying set of American experience. Restaurant patronage grew sharply during the war. People had more money to spend, and busy work schedules and food shortages made domestic dining more difficult. After World War II, the demand for diners increased as families spread to the suburbs. Manufacturers implemented stainless steel exteriors, large windows for mica countertops, porcelain tiles, leather booths, wood paneling, and terrazzo floors. Slowly but surely, the diner morphed, targeting women and children in a bid to train families to eat away from home. Counter space decreased as booths and tables moved in. Owners branded them as an extension of your kitchen. However, there was a major problem, as inner cities suffered from urban diaspora and businesses built manufacturing plants in the suburbs. Many also installed company cafeterias on their property. 
there was suddenly less need to leave work. So prefabricated diners moved in to where the clientele lived and worked. Most of the time, diners occupied the border between suburb and city. In the 1950s, Americans continued to eat out in record numbers. There were now more than 6,000 diners across the country. The diner began to increase in size and became a place where all cultures intersected. Many served local ethnic dishes in combination with traditional American fare. Diners also became a place where famous films centered their stories. Ten minutes fast. The dinner isn't ready yet. Never mind the clock. What have you got to eat? Well, I can give you any kind of sandwiches, bacon and eggs, liver and bacon, ham and eggs, steaks. I'll take the uh, the chicken croquettes with the cream sauce, the green peas, and the mashed potatoes. That's on the dinner, too. Everything we want's on the dinner. That's the way you work it, huh? I can give you ham and eggs, bacon and eggs, I'll liver and bacon. ham and eggs. Give me bacon and eggs. One ham and bacon and... Coming up! You got anything to drink? I can give you soda, beer, ginger ale. I said, have you got anything to drink? No. This is a hot town. What do you call it? Brentwood. Ever hear of Brentwood? What do you do here nights? They eat for dinner. They all come here and eat the big dinner. I had never been on a network show, and I was in the Army, and it was about 1945, and somebody said, they will allow you for the next two or three months while you're waiting to get out to take a job occasionally, as long as it doesn't interfere with your work. And I was in the Armed Forces Radio Service. So uh, I went up and auditioned for a show called The Whistler on CBS. Hope to get a small part in it. Much to my amazement, I got a call to come do it that Sunday, and uh, I was doing the lead, and it, it scared the hell out of me. But I did it. I guess they liked it because they asked me back next week to do the lead, and, it, and I think that was the first, that, well, I know that was the first network show I ever did. William Conrad was born on September 27, 1920, in Louisville, Kentucky. His parents were movie theater owners. Conrad grew up reciting lines and studying films. In high school, he moved to Southern California, majoring in drama and literature at Fullerton College. He started his career at the Los Angeles radio station KMPC. Conrad served as a fighter pilot in World War II. He left the U.S. Army Air Force as a captain and as a producer-director for the Armed Forces Radio Service. In 1946, he was cast as a heavy and received his first film credit as one of the two men sent to gun down Burt Lancaster in The Killers. Conrad 
was just 25. The film was nominated for four Oscars, including Best Direction by Robert C. Odmek. By June of 1949, he had a ton of radio character work to his credit. He appeared on shows like The Man Called X, The Scarlet Voyage, Philip Marlowe, The Whistler, and Escape. Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape. June 5, 1949, Conrad and Lancaster reprised their role in The Killers. It was for an episode of NBC's Screen Director's Playhouse. From Hollywood, the NBC Theater presents... Screen Director's Playhouse, production The Killers, director Robert Siodmak, stars Burt Lancaster, Shelley Winters... Hollywood Screen Directors present A Postscript to Murder, The Killers, starring Burt Lancaster and Shelley Winters, and introducing the director of the film, Robert Siodmak. It's not always necessary to have lived a fabulous life in order to create fabulous motion pictures. But in the case of our guest screen director tonight, it most certainly has helped. At 19, he was a seasoned Shakespearean actor. At 20, director of the Dresden Germany Stock Exchange. At 21, rich. At 23, broke again. At 24, he launched the brilliant motion picture career that was to bring him to Hollywood. The director of such thrilling films as Dark Mirror... Spiral Staircase, and tonight's story, The Killers. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Robert Siodmak. Thank you. Thank you. Hollywood has given the world two kinds of motion pictures which are typically American. They are the Western and the gangster films, such as The Killers. This is not to say that America is a country of gangsters any more than a country of cowboys. It means only that America has created a new and fascinating kind of entertainment, such as our story. That instant is drama. Now here it is, The Killers, starring Burt Lancaster in his original role of Swede and Shelley Winter as Kitty. Swede! Hey, Swede! Swede, it's me, Nick. It's Nick. What are you doing laying down, Swede? You sick? No. Listen, sweet. I was down in George's diner when two hard guys came in looking for you. They, they said they were looking for you to kill you. I know. Then what are you laying here for? There's nothing I can do. Well, don't you want me to go in and see the police? That wouldn't do any good. Couldn't you get out of town? I'm through with running away. But why? Why do they want to kill you? I did something wrong once. Thanks for coming. I just thought, well, okay. But they're coming looking for you, Swede. 
They're coming looking for you. did something wrong once. What? A gas station attendant murdered in an out-of-the-way town called Brentwood, allowing himself to be murdered, helplessly and without complaint, submitting to extermination. Why? Why does a man come to such an abject end? Headquarters put me on the case because I had some college criminology and because I'd known Swede, the victim, back in the old days. This isn't the story of how we got Swede's killers. That's routine police work, and you've heard that story a thousand times. What brings a man to such an end as Swede's? That's the important personal story, and this is it. One by one, we rounded up people who'd known the Swede, some of them on the level. One who wasn't on the level was a gunsel named Blinky Franklin, who knew the Swede when. Give, Blinky. Well, let me see, ten years ago. Swede had just knocked Soldier Burns for ghouls, eh? That put Swede right up there as a contender for the light heavyweight championship. Well, after the fight, I took Swede over to Jim Colfax's apartment where a big party was going on. Kitty Collins, Jim's girl, was singing over the piano. Right away, I see that the Swede's interested. So I waited for Kitty to finish his song, and then I brought the suite over to meet her. I loved him so, but there I go tonight. Tonight I must forget no more memories. Swing out tonight I must forget music, maestro, Blinky, I don't see you beating your palms. Now, look, look, Kitty, I want you to meet Sweet Anderson. Sweet's a coming light heavy champ. Oh, how do you do? Hello, Kitty. Uh, you two make yourself acquainted. I want to talk to some of the boys. I'll... So you're the next champion, Mr. Anderson. Do you like the fights? <laughs> I'm afraid I never saw one. No kidding. I can't bear brutality. The idea of two men beating each other to a pulp makes me ill. <laughs> Well, I don't get hurt. You're unusual, then. I'll, I'll go into some other racket before I let them knock me punchy. Really? It's uh, too bad Jim is out of town. He'd like to speak to you. Who's Jim? Jim Colfax. Um, he owns this apartment. Oh. Well, uh, why would he want to see me? Oh, he has lots of irons in the fire. I'll arrange it for you. Well, thanks. Th th that's swell, Miss... Uh, Miss... Kitty. Remember? I remember. Well, don't forget. I'll see you at the fight sometime. Two, three, four, five. Sweet, get up! Three, get off that camera! Sweet, get up! 
The program debuted as the NBC Theater in January of 1949. It replaced the program hole made when Jack Benny and Edgar Bergen signed with CBS. It was meant to rival CBS's Lux Radio Theater. There was just one major issue. By 1949, the air was full of similar-sounding shows, and none rival Lux, whose rating that month was 27.9. In the fall, when the Screen Director's Playhouse debuted in the ratings, it mustered only a 4.5. NBC's Sunday Night Stronghold was over. William Conrad would spend most of the next decade starring on CBS. I was doing a show in New York called Mr. District Attorney, and I did it for four years, and I had a call one day from someone who said, would you like to go to Washington and discuss a possible show that would be the official FBI radio show? I said I would. I didn't have any clear concept of what it might be, except I thought that the crime show, in my opinion, went through a process of evolutionary stages. You had Gangbusters, which was all kind of out front and, and very, uh, there were no subtleties per se. DA, I thought, was a, a giant step forward, but we were dealing in a different area. We were still more into the dramatic rather than the factual. FBI, I think, we broke this ground. We were, in a sense, documentary, and we put the heavy emphasis on law enforcement rather than the emphasis on the crime. This Is Your FBI debuted over ABC in New York in April of 1945. It ran stories from official federal case files and was sponsored by the Equitable Life Assurance Society. It was created by Jerry Devine, who got cooperation from the FBI. Went to Washington, had a meeting with Mr. Hoover and agency representatives. I got up on my feet and briefly described what I thought an FBI show should be. They were to furnish files for us and I was asked to do the show. We worked with the Bureau very closely in the sense that they would send us copious files, some of which were probably their most dramatic and interesting cases were impossible to dramatize. I mean, I remember one time there'd been a bank failure years ago called the Bank of the United States. This was at the bottom of the Depression. And they had eventually gone through books and processes and sent the people who had made the failure happen to jail. Well, it turned out there were 129 people arrested in this thing. <laughs> and to do this show, and it was all lawyers and briefs and things and what have you, so that kind of culminated one moment with the Bureau in that I said, if it's possible, let us think of what a crime would be. I'm sure that in your files, you can duplicate it. We won't get bizarre, we won't get outlandish, but it will simplify the process because nothing that we can think of hasn't been done and you haven't worked on. And they agreed to this under their supervision. We didn't do 
anything too outlandish or bizarre, obviously. And that was the working arrangement for the eight-some-odd years that we were on the air. After it cracked radio's top 25 in 1947, ABC moved the series to the West Coast, where it featured actors like Parley Bear. You know, all of us today have dropped about 30 years when he came here to work, but I think you've heard so much from Mr. Devine's lips about us that to work for him was a joy and a pleasure. Peggy and I were talking about it. I'm sure that some of the happiest hours I spent in radio were with him and under his direction. Now recording from KECA in Hollywood, radio character actor Stacy Harris became Special Agent Jim Taylor. In December of 1948, This Is Your FBI gave ABC something it lacked on any other evening, the highest rated show on the air. That month, the show's rating was 16.2. By February of 1950, with television pulling radio audiences in droves, This Is Your FBI's rating was down to 12.6. On February 24th, they broadcast the Telltale Calendar. It featured Parley Bear, Jeanette Nolan, Ed Bagley, John McIntyre, and Peggy Weber. Marvin Miller announced, The Equitable Life Assurance Society presents This is your FBI. This is your FBI, the official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Presented transcribed as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community. The Equitable Society's representatives wanted tonight's audience to include certain men and women who are headed for successful careers. So, they did an unusual thing. They asked them to listen. Yes, by telephone, by postcard, by personal request, they invited these special people to listen to tonight's message about the Equitable Society's plan for men and women on the way up. In just 14 minutes, I'll give you full details on this plan for every man who believes he's going to succeed. It is offered by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. Tonight's FBI file, The Telltale Calendar. Like any profession... Law enforcement has its moments of satisfaction. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover's personal capture of Alvin Karpis in New Orleans was such a moment. However, there are also moments of discouragement. Moments when the men whose job it is to enforce the laws of a city, a state, or a nation are faced with the realization that their task is almost overwhelming. In the last ten years, the population of this nation has risen ten million people. Of that number, more than 500,000 have acquired fingerprint arrest records. And yet, in that same period, the total number of law enforcement officers in the United States has not increased at all. Those who opposed any increases in police departments gave many reasons. Chief among them being that the taxpayer could not stand the added strain. That is short-sighted economy, though. For in the field communities which have added manpower to the police force, the number of crimes has shown an appreciable decline. Crime does not pay is a good slogan, but unfortunately, crime cannot be fought with slogans. 
It takes men. Men who know their job. Men ready to battle the army of criminals on every front. Tonight's file opens in a weather-beaten shack located on a desolate stretch of highway in the Midwest. Two crudely painted signs hang in front. One says Harry's Diner, the other says Gasoline. Inside, a nondescript blonde is wiping the counter. A middle-aged man, also in an apron, stands beside her, looking into space. You could wipe this counter till next year and it wouldn't be clean. I know, Mildred. Maybe if you painted it, Mr. Davis. No. Okay. Mr. Davis? What? Do you mind if I take Thursdays off instead of Tuesday? You see, my friend Alice has Thursdays off, and this year her birthday and mine both come on Thursday. And so if I could have off, well, on the 12th instead of the 10th, and then, well, here, you can see for yourself on the calendar. You see, Mr. Davis, I could even start, say, on the 19th instead of the 17th, because my friend's birthday isn't until the 26th anyway. All right, Mildred, go ahead. Mr. Davis, why you got each day X'd off? No reason. You got a circle around next Friday. What's that for? Nothing, Mildred. Harry, we're running low on coffee. All right, uh... Is it a surprise or something, Mr. Davis? Is what a surprise, Mildred? The ring around next Friday on the calendar. What's so special about Friday? Mildred, please mind your own business. There's a pile of dishes in the sink, Mildred. You better get at them. Ask a simple question. All of a sudden, everybody gets mad. People are all the time getting mad about nothing. You say one thing... Harry, I wish you wouldn't worry so. The... They get out this week, Ethel. I know. But it's been so long. They won't forget. How do you know? They've been in jail for 20 years. With nothing to think about except me. But you're safe now. We're ten miles from the nearest... No, Ethel, no. We're not safe. When they get out, they'll come looking for me. And they'll find me. A few days later, at an FBI field office, Special Agent Jim Taylor enters the office of Agent in Charge Butler. You sent for me, Mr. Butler? Yes, Taylor. Now, uh, this may or may not turn out to be anything, but you'd better check into it. All right, sir. Two men named Al Cochran and Leo Parsons get out of the pen tomorrow. Al Cochran and Leo Parsons? Yes, there's no reason why you should remember them. They've been away for 20 years. Oh, I see. In the old days, they used to sell protection to laundries. If they didn't get paid, the laundry trucks were dumped into the river. Yeah. Well, one day they dumped a truck with the driver still behind the wheel. In the getaway, they killed a United States Marshal. They committed two murders and got off with jail sentences? Yes, they were convicted mainly on the evidence of an underling in their organization whose name was Harry Davis. Uh -huh. Cochran and Parsons had a good story and stuck to it, but this Harry Davis cracked under questioning. They swore they'd kill Davis when they got out. And they get out tomorrow? Yes. Now, ordinarily, that kind of threat is an empty one, but I just got a report from the prison. A guard overheard Cochran and Parsons talking about Davis. Have they been questioned? Yes, but they denied everything. Mm -hmm. If you locate Davis, we'll notify the police wherever he is to give him some protection. All right, sir. You'll find the testimony of the trial in our files. Read it as soon as you get a chance. 
I wish you'd try to keep this clock wound, Mildred. I do, Mr. Davis. You're always letting it run down. I must have stopped yesterday while I was off. Here, put it up on the shelf. You never have to wind those electric clocks. Mildred, I want to talk to Miss Davis. Go ahead. Alone. Again alone? Yes. Mildred, go into the kitchen. I don't know what could be so private all of a sudden. I don't keep no secrets from anybody, and I don't like I was right, Ethel. About what? About Leo and Al getting out. How do you know? I called the prison. You made a long-distance call? I had to. Oh, Harry. I had to find out, Ethel. They'd probably already started to look for me. They'll never find you. They can't. Nobody knows where we are. Paul does. You're not afraid of your own son. I'm going to write him. If anybody asks for me, Paul can say I'm dead. He wouldn't tell anyone where you were anyway. Maybe we'll sell a diner. Move again. Harry, we've moved every year since this thing happened. I knew why we were doing it, and I never complained, did I? No. But there comes a time when you have to stop. We can't just keep running for the rest of our lives. Moving once more won't hurt us. This will be the last time, Ethel, I promise. Where do you want to go? Any place. So long as nobody there knows me. We'll change our name. That's it, we'll change our name. And then there won't be any Harry Davis left to be killed. Feels good being out, Al. Yeah. When is this very dark? Right over there. Remember? Oh, yeah. Everything looks the same. Remember that pier up there, Al? Sure. That ain't changed. Yeah. And the dock where that big boat is. I don't know that one. I used it once. Not with me. Now, before I met you. Oh. I dumped a bag of cement off there. Anybody I know? Joey Lee. Yeah, I remember him. Now we're getting close. Let's move up front. Okay. I hope Harry Davis is still around. I ain't worrying. Why not? We know his kid lives here. Oh, yeah. If we don't find Harry, we'll find the kid. He'll tell us. He'll tell us real quick. something to report on that Harry Davis assignment, Mr. Butler. Have you found him yet, Taylor? No, sir, but we should know where he is sometime this evening. Good. The police rounded up a couple of other members of Cochran and Parsons' old mob. One of them told me Davis is a son named Paul who lives here. Oh, well, he shouldn't be too hard to locate. Well, we've already found out where he lives. I called his house and left word with his wife to have him call me. You sure you've got the right Paul Davis? Yes, sir, and I'm also pretty sure that Leo Parsons and Al Cochran know about Paul Davis, too. Why? When I spoke to his wife, she told me that a man who wouldn't leave his name had called a little while ago to find Harry's address. Yeah? Said he was an old friend of Harry's who'd just gotten into town, but he was Pardon me. Certainly, sir. Butler speaking. Detective Nelson at headquarters. Yes, Nelson. Something just came in that might interest you. 
know that guy, Harry Davis, you're looking for? Yes, have you found him? No, but I just got a call from one of my men at the emergency hospital. Harry Davis's son was just brought in there. What happened? He was beat up pretty bad. In fact, he's still unconscious. Thanks very much, Nelson. I'll send a man down there right away. This is the place, Al. Uh-huh. Will you gentlemen sit at the table? No. Like to see a menu? Just coffee. And you? Coffee for me, too. We have some nice pies. Apple, peach. No. No. If you change your mind. Uh, wait a minute, lady. Yes? What is it? Been here long? About a year. You run the place alone? No. We didn't think so. Why? Sign outside says Harry's diner. Oh. Where is he? Who? Harry. Oh, there, there is no Harry. Huh? I run the place with my sister. It says Harry's Diner. I bought the place from a man named Harry Jackson. I didn't change the sign. Harry Jackson? Uh, yes. You believe that, Al? No. What do you men want? Harry Davis. Nobody around here by that name. Well, what did this Harry Jackson look like? Well, he was an old man. He had gray hair. Where'd he go? Someplace in California. He had some children out there. We got no more bacon, Mrs. Davis. You hear that, Al? Uh-huh. Go back in the kitchen, Mildred. Stay right here, Mildred. <laughs> Davis, he's got a gun. Where's Harry Davis? He went... Shut up, Mildred! Go ahead, Mildred. Talk. He went into town. What town? Centerville. He went to pick up some supplies. When will he be back? Tonight. Thanks, Mildred. We'll wait for him. <laughs> Turn in just a moment to this exciting file which shows how your FBI helps protect the security of America. Actually, Peggy's responsible for this whole affair, literally. If you knew Peggy, as we know Peggy, and she sends out a summons, you better be there, I'll tell you that. There's a story. I don't know whether it's what the basis of truth is, but two men met at the North Pole, and one of them asked the other one, what are you doing here? He said, I don't know, but Peggy Weber told me to be here. <laughs> right? uh, anyway, I think it's safe to say that Peggy did, probably in the time that I was out here, from 47 to 53, Peggy did more radio shows than anyone, any actor, actress that I'd ever heard of. Uh, she did 50 of our FBI shows. I don't think that Jack Webb would do a dragnet without her. She's a dear friend and a marvelous talent. Thank you, Peggy. This is your FBI would air until January 30th, 1953. 
When we were broadcasting from New York, we always did a second show for the West Coast. Time period was a lapse of three hours. DA, we were on 9 to 9.30, so we would do 12 to 12.30. FBI, we were on 8.30 to 9, so we would do 11.30 to 12 when we were live from New York. This is before tape, before anything. Well, one of the hazards that I've often wondered whether people on the West Coast who listened in that period realized that there was a tremendous difference between the first broadcast, which was wonderfully disciplined, and the second where everybody got over to Touch Yours or someplace and knocked uh, <laughs> back a little action. And one of the processes seemed to be that alcohol generally did two things. We're not talking about someone being drunk. We're just talking about someone getting a little... And it did two... One, it seemed to raise the confidence level enormously. <laughs> uh, I mean, no, you could do it with no script. It was just amazing. But, and the second was what we always used to call those long pauses. <laughs> now, we were at that moment where we had the stopwatch and 29.30 was your absolute and you better damn well get off with it. And we had so much flexibility, or had to, for that second show, because we would either go like this to the commercial, or we'd compress there, because there were certain actors who became enormously eloquent with long pauses. <laughs> <laughs> but it was exciting, because live radio was a thing unto itself. It was one of the most stimulating things that anyone who ever encountered it to any degree will always recall as one of the highlights of their lives. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. I've never been bitter about it, but it happens and it can happen to everybody. I saw anybody. When I had some dark days, a lot of my so-called friends disappeared. Everybody disappeared. It didn't bother me. As a matter of fact, it taught me a lesson to become a little more tolerant with people because I trying to understand why they did what they did. And I understood later on, I worked it out in my own mind. They you were insecure them. themselves and they didn't know how to handle Absolutely. helping somebody else. Because I think I became a whole man when I was about mid-30s. the middle 30s, I began to see things in a different angle and I found that I became more tolerant in people. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the idol of Bobby Sox's from 6 to 60, a truly great star, Frank Sinatra. Thank you very much, John. Hello, everybody. 
May I offer my welcome musically with a personal favorite of mine called Why Try to Change Me Now? I'm sentimental, so I walk in the rain I've got some habits even I can't explain Near the end of 1952, it seemed Frank Sinatra was finished. He'd been dropped by MGM, Columbia, and MCA. The singer was on his own. His last studio recording for Columbia, Why Try to Change Me Now, was recorded in New York, arranged and conducted by Percy Faith. Then in the spring of 1953, Sinatra got the opportunity to revive his career. It was with a supporting role in the film From Here to Eternity. I read the book when Jimmy Jones wrote the book, and I had read a synopsis in the book section of either the New York Times or some paper. Obviously, I went out and I got the book. I was just interested in what he was writing about. I had no idea what the content was in people. And when I read the book, I fell in love with the role of Maggio. And I thought also to myself, I've known a hundred kids like this guy. I was brought up with him in New Jersey. With production about to start, the role of Maggio was Eli Wallach's to have. But at the last minute, Wallach decided to star in a Broadway production of Camino Real. The play was to open in March. So Maggio was once again available. When the news broke in the trade papers that Columbia was to, had bought it, they were to make a film of it, I began listening to people talking about it and finding out who had they cast and who will they cast. Finally, it came down to the short strokes, and they hadn't cast Maggio yet. They'd cast Bert Lancaster as Warden and uh, Deborah Carr. I uh, called Harry Cohen, who was then among us, and he was uh, the head of the studio. And he said, well, Ken, he said, you know, you're a singer, and uh, Bobby Sachs And I said, yeah, I said, but why should you lock me into that kind of a position? He said, no, I said, you know, I love you, but uh, I don't know. He said, let me think about it. So I left. Buddy Adler, who was the executive producer, I talked to Buddy about it, and he said, everybody wants to play the role. And I said, naturally. And then it went all the way down the line of people I had spoken to, and I had nobody said yes or no. And then one day I heard that they had tested Eli Wallach, and I figured I was dead. Because he's my friend to begin with, and a hell of an actor. I had never done a dramatic role. I thought, he's a cinch and he'd be marvelous. Sinatra and a strange wife, Ava Gardner, had to convince Columbia Pictures president Harry Cohn to give Frank a shot. Several months went by. I had a call from one of my agents. <laughs> I said, would you like to make a screen test? And I said, I would love to do a screen test. So I went and I did a screen test. And I didn't hear anything for several weeks. Oh, the agony. Yeah. Meantime, I went about my business trying to find another movie to do. Then I got a call with they decided they wanted to give me the role. Uh, however, the budget was pretty small at that stage. They had spent most of their money. And I said, it's okay, I'll pay Harry Cohn if you let me do the picture. Which is true. And he laughed about it. 
They said, they want you to do the part, but they want to give you $8,000 at the front. <laughs> I said, deal. On March 13th, Sinatra met with Capitol Records Vice President Alan Livingston. He signed a seven-year recording contract. The first session produced four sides, including I'm Walking Behind You. It would climb to number seven, his highest charter in three years. Directly after, Sinatra left for Hawaii. sister. Further fatso, and I'm gonna debrain you. Nobody's gonna do nothing. Anybody does any killing around here, I'll do it. This is a private affair, warden. No, it ain't. This man's in my company. And you ain't making two extra weeks' paperwork for me for nothing. Out for blood, huh? You'd puke your guts out at the sight of a dead man. Put down that stool. Put it down! The film takes place in Hawaii in late 1941. A private, Pruitt played by Montgomery Clift, is cruelly punished by his captain, played by Philip Ober, for not boxing on the unit's team, while the captain's wife, played by Deborah Kerr, and second-in-command Warden, played by Burt Lancaster, are falling in love. On the floor. Pruitt is supported by Sinatra's private Maggio, because of which Maggio is despised by Staff Sergeant Judson, played by Ernest Borgnine. Maggio and Judson almost come to blows over Judson's piano playing. And later, Judson provokes Maggio by taking a photo of his sister from him, kissing it, and whispering in Pruitt's ear. Maggio later gets sent to Judson's stockade for having drunkenly abandoned his post. Judson abuses Maggio. Maggio escapes, finds Pruitt, tells him the story, and dies in his arms. Someday you walk in, I'll be waiting. I'll show you a couple of things. In retaliation, Pruitt is wounded while killing Judson. The film reaches its crescendo as the Japanese attack on the morning of December 7th. Pruitt dies during the attack. I've got the world on a string Sitting on a rainbow Got the string around my finger What a world, what a life I'm in love News of the film began to trickle through the trade papers. Sinatra returned on April 30th for his first recording session with Nelson Riddle. From Here to Eternity was released on August 5th. The entire cast and production crew received tremendous praise 
none higher than Sinatra. It was Burt Lancaster who later said that Sinatra's fervor and bitterness had something to do with the character of Maggio, but also with what he'd gone through the last number of years. A sense of defeat, the whole world crashing in on him, they all came out in that performance. I like films. You were a natural actor, weren't you? I mean, I, think so. I never studied. No, I never went to any, any of the schools or anything like that. I just felt that if you learn your words properly, like you know your name, first of all, if you believe when you've taken the job, you obviously believe in what you're about to do, and then learn the words properly, that's your sense. If you have any brains at all, you should be able to do it very well. Why? I don't know. I thought that acting is, a, is play acting like we did when we were kids, but suddenly you're grown up and it's for real. And then you become immersed in what you're playing, too. You also... I made myself think that I was really that guy on any film I did, comedy or, or whatever it might have been. From Here to Eternity was one of the ten highest grossing films of the decade. It was nominated for 12 Academy Awards. Although Sinatra was again on the rise, he was still broke. NBC Radio presented two new opportunities to Frank. Frank Sinatra, transcribed as Rocky Fortune. October 6, 1953 at Radio City West on Sunset and Vine, Sinatra taped the first episode of a new detective series called Rocky Fortune. The show premiered that Tuesday evening at 9.30. Each week, Fortune was sent on a new job assignment. He chased skirts, got himself knocked out, helped kids in need, and somehow always managed to come through relatively unscathed. Hi. I don't know what it is about me and work that keeps the two of us from ever going steady Eddie, but sometimes I just get restless and I quit a job, and then again sometimes I get restless and I take one. This time I took one. Night counterman at an all-night Hamburg diner. The diner was located on the lower west side, right between a saloon and a dance hall. Those who liked weak drinks went to the saloon, and those who liked strong women went to the dance joint. Nobody came to the diner. Nobody but trouble. Trouble was a nine-year-old cowboy with freckles and a shoebox under his arm, and it was around midnight on a miserable night when the door popped open and he popped in. Uh, how do you do? What'll it be, partner? Uh, one wimpy, drown it. How's that? One wimpy, drown it. A hamburger with ketchup. Oh, excuse me, kid. I'm still new at this job. I sling the hash, but not the lingo. Okay, one wimpy coming up. And drown it. Right, oh, we'll drown it. What's a kid like you doing out this late on a rainy night? Um, I'm just coming back from a friend's house. Hmm. What was it, an all-night pinochle game? How old are you anyway, son? Eight? I'm nine. Nine? Well, going on nine. Oh, pardon me. How about a glass of milk while you're waiting? Okay. You, uh, got any money? See this shoebox? Yep. Know what's in it? Shoes? Money. $50,000. Yeah? Well, that's a nice safe place to hide it, kid. Only you go around walking with that much dough in your shoes and you're going to be ten feet tall. 
Hey, uh, here's your hamburger. Oh, thanks. You forgot to drown it. What? Ketchup. Oh, yeah, the ketchup here. Yeah, slow down. Take it. When did you eat last, anyway? This morning. Well, I guess you'll be wanting another burger then. Mm-hmm. Coming up. Where do you live, kid? No place. You, uh, wouldn't be on the lamb, would you? Uh-uh. Running away from home? Hmm. I guess I guessed it. Things tough at school? Maybe your mom just doesn't understand you, huh? I got no mom. Oh. You got a pop? Yeah, I got a pop. What's his name? None of your business. Okay, okay. You're a citizen. You don't have to answer. How about another milk? Where you headed? Boat. Any uh, special boat? One that's going far away. Your boats cost a lot of money. I got a whole shoebox full of money. Oh, sure, I forgot. That's right. You're loaded with loot. How much do I owe you? Forget it. I can pay you. Now, look, kid, it's a cold, wet night. This is a bad neighborhood. Why don't you go home and run away some other time? I can't go home. You just think you can't. It don't help to run away, kid. I'm an expert. I've been running all my life. I can't go home. I'll call a friend of mine who's a cop and he'll take you... Get away from that telephone, mister. I got a gun in my pocket and I'll shoot you. Oh. I didn't know you were a desperado. Who is it? Billy the Kid or Jesse James? Just tell me how much and I'll get out of here. Hamburger, two glasses at 40 cents. Okay. Here's a dollar. Keep the change. Thanks. I... (laughs) Well, what do you know? What's the matter? Nothing. Not a thing, kid. I was just admiring the lifelike engraving here of President Howdy Doody. Yep, the kid had handed me a hunk of Howdy Doody money. But I make like it's a real stuff and ring it up. He starts to climb down off the seat, hanging on to his small shoebox full of Howdy Doody dough like his life depended on it. All of a sudden, he looks awful small and scared. It reminds me of the way I must have looked myself when I took off from the orphan home at the advanced age of ten years. Well, I... I gotta be shoving off. So long. Thanks for the tip. Oh, a, a kid. Yeah? You know, if you've got a long boat ride ahead of you, you ought to take some food along. Why don't you wait here a minute? I'll see if we got some donuts back in the kitchen. Well, okay, but no tricks. I got a gun in my pocket. Sure, no tricks. I'll be right back. Here, you can listen to the radio while I'm out. Give me the 21st precinct. Uh-huh. Hello, is Detective Sergeant Finger there? Yeah. Hello, Finger, this is Rocky. Rocky Fortune. Listen, I got a scared young kid down here at the Oasis Diner on Fleet Street. Uh-huh, a runaway. Can you send some money down to pick him up? I can't leave the joint. Yeah, sure, I'll stall him. Thanks, Sergeant. <laughs> I hang up and go out front again. When I get there, Junior's disappeared. And in this place is a young dame about 22 with a figure like the before and after ads. Only she's after, if you know what I mean. When I get around to it, I see she's got a nice face, too. Pardon me. Pardon me? Well, you haven't done anything. I'd love to. What'll it be? Well, I'd like to ask you a question. I'd like to ask you one, too. Have you seen a little boy about nine? That isn't the question I had in mind, but it still goes. Have you seen one, honey? 
please, I'm serious. So am I. There was a kid here a few minutes ago. Did you see him? No. Was he a little boy with freckles and reddish hair? That's the boy. A pocket-sized Arthur Godfrey. You a relative? I'm his aunt. Please, where did he go? I where? told you, he disappeared. Well, did he say where he was going? Out of Mongolia, I think. What's the story on him? Well, he ran away from his boarding school. He stopped at his father's house early this evening to get some things, and then he just disappeared. How did you track him down here? Well, I located a taxi driver who dropped him off at the corner. Since this is the only place open at this hour, I thought you might have seen him. How come his pop didn't notify the cops? Well, I, I thought he had. Uh-uh. Don't you have some idea which way he went? Well, you might try the waterfront. He mentioned hopping a boat. Oh, thank you. Say, uh, it's no neighborhood for a pretty girl alone. I... I can take care of myself, Mr. Fortune. Call me Rocky. Uh, Mr. Fortune. Uh, if you wait till I close up, I'll... Good night. Uh, I'll nothing. Concerning the holdup of the shoe company payroll last night, police still have no clue as to the identity of the four men who stole the money. They wore Halloween masks. The smallest seemed to be the leader, and an all-points bulletin has been broadcast by the police huh? in an effort to prevent you the men from getting beyond... I heard. Step over here. What is this? You hide. Okay. I'm looking for a kid, nine years old. Freckles, red hair. Who isn't? You want me to hit him, boss? Take it easy, Moose. You seen him? What if I have? You'll tell me. Suppose I don't feel like. Okay, boss. Okay. Ooh. Well? Okay, he was here and he left. Did he have anything with him? Just an old shoebox. Which way'd he go? How should I know? Maybe you saw. I didn't. Now, how about taking your gorilla and getting out of here? Can I hit him, boss? Take it easy. Did he say anything? Anything happened while he was here? He said he was running away from home. A dame comes in and she says she's his aunt. I told her I didn't know where he was. That's all? That's all. You sure? I said that's all. Moose. Boss? Make sure. Okay. Oh. Still sure? I'm sure. Well? I told you. He's sure. Come on, Moose. Thanks, Buck. My stomach feels like I've been kicked by an army mule, so I hang on to the counter till the blue wheels stop going around, then I go behind the counter to clean up for the night. I hear a noise which seems to be coming from inside a big trash can we keep there, and I figure we got mice again, so I open it. And the mice is a small boy with a shoebox and a face full of half-eaten custard pie. Okay, kid, come out of the pail. Are they gone? You have been in there all that time? I hit her when I heard someone coming. Did you hear those two hoods? Uh-huh. You want to tell me why those roughnecks were after you? Well, the big one, Moose, he's a hired muscle. Muscle? You know, a gunman, a fiddler. The little one, he's Perry Brock. Brock? Yeah, he's one of the old murder consolidated boys, isn't he? Uh-huh. Now you know why I don't want to go home? I don't follow, son. What's Perry Brock to you? My father. Oh, you got a lot of trouble. So you see, if you call the cops and they send me home, he'll just... Beat me up and send me back to the boarding school again. Yeah, I guess he would. So I better get going, mister. Call me Rocky. My name's Mickey. Hold it, Mick. Here comes the law. I'll duck out the back. You can get back in the garbage can. I'll get rid of him. Well, hiya, Sergeant. Where's the kid? The kid? Oh, yeah. Oh, the kid. He took off. Vanished. You don't say. Just like that. Poof. You couldn't call up the precinct and say, Sergeant Finger, don't bother walking over here on your tired feet on which you've been standing all day. The kid is gone. You couldn't do that, huh? Well, I tried to get you, but the line was busy. Here, have a cup of coffee and a hamburger. On the house. You trying to bribe an officer? Uh-huh. Make it a double hamburger with an onion. 
Two double hamburgers and a pecan ring later, I get rid of Sergeant Finger of the Mounted and get the kid out of the garbage can. He smells like an old gymnasium, but I can't figure anything else except to take him in the shoebox home with me, which I do. I let him soak for a few hours and put him in my bed while I make like G.I. Joe on the broadloom. About ten minutes after I fall asleep... Mickey. Hey, Mickey. What is it, kid? What's the matter? Nothing. Just crying to irrigate the freckles, huh? Let me alone. I know how you must feel, Mick. Nobody knows how I feel. That's not true, kid. Lots of people get a raw deal from life. You take me. I was an orphan. I didn't even have a father to run away from. Maybe you're lucky. You don't get much love from a paid matron who has to divide it up among 150 lonely kids. Sounds like a boarding school. Yeah. Sometimes I used to lay in bed wanting to cry so bad I thought I'd bust wide open. That's how I feel sometimes. So I ran away, too, just like you. Only it didn't help. I was twice as lonely and there was nobody to cry to. I've been running all my life. Get restless, quit a job. Get restless, take a job. It adds up to a big, fat goose egg. I don't care. I'm going to be tough. Sure, you live in the jungle. You got to be tough. But running away, well, that ain't tough, kid. Why don't you go home to your dad? I can't. Why not? He don't want me. He never wanted me. He never even lived with me and Mom. Never? Uh-uh. After Mom died, I, I lived with my Aunt Annie, Mom's sister. But then she and Dad had a big fight, and he sent me away to boarding school. You like your aunt? Yeah, she's okay. Yeah, that's how she looked to me. Well, suppose we call her. No, Dad would just come and get me again. He ain't much good, Rocky. I hate to hear you say that, but I guess maybe you're right, kid. Let's get some sleep and we'll talk about it in the morning. Here, blow. Atta boy. Yeah, pull the cover over you. Good night, kid. Rocky? Mm-hmm. Could I stay at you, maybe? We could both be orphans together, huh? No, I'm afraid not, kid. I could get a job. I'm strong, honest. And I got plenty of money, enough for both of us. More than $50,000. I wouldn't be much trouble, Rocky, honest. We'll talk about it in the morning, huh? Let's get some sleep. Good night, Mickey. Good night, Rocky. On March 25th, 1954... Frank Sinatra won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his role as Maggio. On the Sunday's bookending those awards, Frank was a guest on Bing Crosby's General Electric radio program. On this latter program from March 28th, Frank talks and jokes about his experience. The two are in rare form, especially with a trio of songs. Now, ladies and gentlemen, pursuant with our established policy of always being first with the latest... We now present the gentleman who last Thursday night won the Academy Award for the Best Supporting Actor for his performance of Maggio in the motion picture From Here to Eternity. Mr. Frank Sinatra. Thank you, Dean. Here, Frank, now, just a minute. Let me make you comfortable here. Let me take your Oscar. I'll put it over here on the table. Uh-uh, don't drop it. <laughs> what are you carrying the Oscar around for, anyhow? Well, it isn't raining, and I can't carry an umbrella. <laughs> get a cane or something. You get this thing all tarnished. Honestly, Frank, I'm certainly happy that you grabbed it. Well, it's wonderful, and I'd like to tell everyone listening that I'm really thrilled to receive this honor, Bing, and also that I'm very grateful. Well, I know you are. If I'm not me, I never lift another lasagna. 
You can lift the lasagna? One at a time, never a whole dish. <laughs> well, Frank, speaking of lasagna and Lola Lola Brigida and other Italian delicacies, I'll bet there was great rejoicing at the Villa Capri last Thursday night, huh? Yeah, it's still raging. Viva la Frankie, viva la forza, Frankie. You know something, though, Bing? If I had lost, they were going to fry spaghetti at half mass for a whole year. Think <laughs> Well, so much for reaction at a local restaurant. Oh, no, no, there's more. What now? Dave Chasen sent me a cake with an Oscar on it. Good old Dave. Isn't he wonderful? Always comes through with something special for a special occasion. Now to switch to New York, tell me, how did uh, Toots Shaw take your victory? He was delirious. That's normal for Tootsie. <laughs> Tootsie is 250 pounds of pure love. Well, just a dash of cognac, too. <laughs> tell me, Frank, were you nervous when you went to the big dudes at the Pantages Theater last Thursday night? I was delirious, too, Naturally. Bing. All the excitement, sure. the searchlights, the crowds, and the glamour, and the shops, the cotto sound, the fingernails being nibbled. Oh, yes. <laughs> Popping of General Electric flashbulbs. Oh, we must have you back. <laughs> anytime, anytime. Now, Frank, not to intentionally bring this interesting discussion to a close, but would you like to sing a song for us now? Well, I don't know. Should I sing a song or recite something from Hamlet? <laughs> I think Hamlet might be a little ponderous, Frank, a little a heavy, ponderous. yes. Why don't you open up with something light and frothy, like the boy stood on the burning deck, then you could, you could ease into Hamlet later. What do you mean, later? Uh, at the Villa Capri, after the show. Okay. The boy stood on the burning deck. <clears throat> the boy stood on the burning John deck. God, quick, cue this boy into a song. The flames leaped up around his head. <laughs> Love may be a gamble or a lead pipe cinch. Leave your heart a shambles, never give an inch. But however it goes, when it's under your nose, take a chance, take a chance, take a chance. Love may be a fire or a puff of smoke, moments of desire or it's go for broke. But however it's planned, when it's close as your hand, take a chance, take a chance, take a chance. You may be the one. Two days later, Rocky Fortune aired its last episode. You may be the one in a million who gets hit between the eyes. Love may be the ocean or a drop of rain. Even as the nation... And now one of the highlights of Sunday television becomes a monitor feature presentation. Youth wants to know. Earlier today, teenagers from the Washington, D.C. area met in our NBC studios there to question Judge Samuel S. Leibowitz, judge of Kings County Court of New York. Monitor was there, and we recorded every word so that we might bring you the discussion just as it took place this afternoon. Here now is the moderator of today's program, Steve McCormick. Switchblade knives and gang fights to robbery and murder the end result of juvenile delinquency. Today's teenagers have devised such instruments of death and violence as a harmless-looking automatic pencil capable of firing 22 caliber bullets. In 1958, Harry Zellin opened his sixth market diner on the west side of Manhattan. He got rid of traditional overhead signboards and relied exclusively on individualized menus. 
but the longshoremen and truckers who frequented demanded Zelen install the old-fashioned menu boards so the place would be more like a diner. Afraid of losing business, Zeldin complied. Even as the diner industry tried to construct an image around the customer who wanted a quick meal in a clean place without booze, circumstances often dictated compromises. Some diners began to offer bottled beer, kitty menus, and to cater to teenagers, soda fountains and jukeboxes were installed. However, America was facing a new problem coming out of the Red Scare, juvenile delinquency. Diners were seen as communal ground for crime-planning youths. The images of Elvis Presley, James Dean, and Marlon Brando did little to dissuade the perception. Because most of the parents who are the who produce these juvenile delinquents themselves need psychiatric treatment. Simultaneously, until the 1960s, many Southern Midwest and Mid-Atlantic diners refused to seat African American customers. They had to order their food to go. Even where overt racial discrimination wasn't practiced. Residential segregation preserved diners as white European institutions. Through the 1950s, suburbanization was primarily a white phenomenon. African-American customers weren't there to be served. Both the diner and automat were threatened by the arrival of fast food. National chains like Harvey House, McDonald's, and Burger King targeted children and took over. While by the mid-1960s they practiced no such racial segregation, the drive-in and later drive-through became a normal part of culture. Some diners hung on. However, like American Dramatic Radio, by the early 1960s it seemed diners were on their last leg. When Gunsmoke went on the air in uh, April of 52, it was really the only one of its kind. In the years that followed, I think there were a good many imitators, uh, some very successful and some just poor imitations. Shows not only went from radio to television, but a couple of shows came from television to radio. For example, Have Gun Will Travel, which was on adjacent to the television program of Gunsmoke, became a radio program after the fact, several years later, and was quite successful. John Daner played the lead. He played Paladin, the part that Dick Boone originated. Speaking of Dodge City, you spent a lot of time on radio in Dodge City, didn't you? I sure did. Eleven years, nearly. Eleven with, uh, years. You were uh, Chester. Chester. On the, uh, the first series. Chester. Yeah. Bill Conrad was Dylan, Dylan uh-huh. and uh, Howard McNear played Doc, and a fine actress by the name of Georgia Ellis played uh, Kitty. Now, this is a show for radio that came along more or less at the end of or yes. at the beginning of the end of the radio yes. days, and yet it lasted for all of those years. Yes. By that time, we were recorded ahead, and we were all very grateful that we had enough shows recorded in the can, so to speak, that we did 
not know when we were doing our last one. I don't think it would have been a very enjoyable day for us to go in there knowing that this was it. We kind of began. I missed five out of about 530 because I was overseas making a picture called Young Lions and we ran into bad weather. I think one week I had mumps and another week I was sent on an errand <laughs> and got lost. I don't know. Those were really fine programs. They were uh, adult westerns for yes, radio. That's how they were billed, adult westerns. Mm -hmm. they, well, they, as a lot of shows have done now, I think we entered areas that westerns, indeed that radio shows, had not entered before. There was a little of the psychological involved, and there were instances where sometimes right did not triumph. Mm -hmm. As in the real world. And the thing about Gunsmoke, it became a labor of love for all of us. I know I, I still have a big library of uh, Western fact and fiction mm -hmm. of that era. And uh, John Meston, who's the uh, chief writer on there, said, Jackson, this is the hardest show to write because everybody knows as far as dates and whatnot are concerned. Everyone knows if I'm right, he said, I have to be doubly careful mm -hmm. on my research. But we were a pretty intact group there. We had the same director, the same assistant director, the same script girl, the same engineer, the same sound crew. The music was the same. And in addition to the four regulars, there probably were not more than 20 or 25 people who were used. It formed a pretty tight nucleus, a stock company, as it were. I think that if we had been given just an outline, I think that Bill and Howard and Georgia and I and some of the regulars, I think we could have ad-libbed a show if... It was that mm -hmm. tight and that close? Yeah. So we got close to know to each it. other's uh -huh. timing so well. Mm -hmm. and and anticipate each other's thoughts. And I remember little things like, well, Dylan had told Chester to put some wood on the fire, and the sound of the logs going on there. And I went, <coughs> he said, well, get out of the smoke. <laughs> Just as an ad lib, huh? <laughs> Green, you should have got dry, and then we went on with whatever <laughs> we were doing. And things like that, that... You really got into it. That gave us... Yeah. After Have Gun Will Travel went off the air in November of 1960, and production of Yours Truly Johnny Dollar and Suspense shifted to New York, Gunsmoke was the last network radio drama originating from Hollywood. For actors like Larry Dobkin, Lillian Bayef, and Don Diamond, Gunsmoke was the last gasp of the craft they'd come to love. I didn't find out about this until after it was in train as a series, and I, I joined the company. Joined the company. I was never contracted to do the show. I think in the first three years, doing 39 episodes a season. In the first three years, I calculate, I was present in the cast at least 90% of the time. 
It was tricky for those of us who were regulars on Gunsmoke, or more or less regulars on Gunsmoke, we had the last surviving live radio show for a long time. We were the only radio show still going. Everything else had dried up and gone. At least, I've forgotten now whether it was two years or three after Gunsmoke became a television series. And we were still doing the radio show. You said a live radio show. It was on tape. Well, we did it on tape. But, but it was still... We did it as though it were live. Yeah. The end was near. Director Norman MacDonald remembered that time. It seems to me that in the old days of radio, and I'm going back again to the 40s and 50s, the executives were men with an experience in and a feeling for the theatrical end of the business as opposed to the business end of radio. There was a wonderful meeting of the minds when you went in and said you wanted to do such and such a kind of show. They could, they could picture and understand and either agree or disagree with what you had in mind, but they knew what you were talking about. It was really extraordinarily easy to get a conference or a meeting with the uh, then CBS brass. Usually it was one man or two men, and that one man or those two men said yes or no to your idea, and you either went with it or didn't. There was no feeling of committee and that somebody upstairs would say yes or no. My point, however, is that in the space of about a six-minute conversation in Harry Ackerman's office, I walked out with the knowledge that I could have a studio, an engineer, an orchestra, a recording session, a cast, all agreed to in about five minutes. And it takes more than that to ride up in an elevator today to one of the executive's offices. A month after Have Gun, Will Travel went off the air on December 11, 1960, Gunsmoke broadcast an episode called The Cook. The guest starred Sam Edwards. City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke, starring William Conrad story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal, the first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. What do you want? 
Coffee. A pot of it, if you don't mind. Coffee. Mr. Dream. Now, look here, cowboy. Sandy King's the name, Mr. Green. Don't you, Mr. Green, me. Okay. Hank, what's on your mind? Feeding you is on my mind. You've been eating here a whole week on credit, and you ain't paid a cent. Of course not. What do you mean, of course not? When a man eats on credit, he ain't supposed to pay, is he? Now, you look here. I'm broke, Hank. I'm broker than you are. Look at this place. I ain't got enough customers to pay for the water. The food's bad, Hank. That's the whole trouble. You've been eating it a whole week, you buzzard. <laughs> now it ain't that bad. <laughs> Sandy, you got more nerve than any man I ever met. But nerve ain't money, and I can't afford to feed you no more. So that's that. Well, now, Hank, maybe I have been kind of taking advantage of you. <laughs> You've got a real easy way of putting things. I'll make up for it. How? Go out there and fire that drunken cook you got. I'll take over for a week. How's that? You take over what? Cooking? Yeah. Well, how do I know you're any better than he is? Well, I'm not drunk. That'll be some improvement, won't it? I don't know. But you're right. He is a drunk. I'll do it. But you better be good. Only one way to find out. Just a good food is no excuse for hog manners. Any way a man can get it down is fair, the way I see it. Yeah, but you're not the one who has to see it. We are. Oh, Doc, let him eat in peace. The first good food we've had until Monica was in years. Uh, hello, Miss Kitty. Chester, Doc. Hello, hello. Hey, How are you getting on here? Fine, Hank. I've eaten here three times a day for a week, and it's getting better and better. Yeah, that cook of yours was a real fine, huh? Uh, he's a good boy, Sandy is. I'm going to put him on pay after today, and I'm going to pay him well, too. Oh, you should. Well, what with the trail herd starting to arrive, you're going to get rich with him out in the kitchen, Hank. <laughs> they say the word's gone clean to Texas already. Yeah, things have sure changed around here. Yeah, I hear you put a leg iron on him at night and chain him to the bed. <laughs> I think I'll start doing that. <laughs> well, you ready to leave, Chester? I don't know whether I can move or not. Well, maybe you better try, Chester. Hank's got other customers waiting. Oh, that's all right, Miss Kitty. Uh, we have to go anyway. And we'll be back this evening. Well, come early, boys. I'll be here at sundown. Good, good. So long, Bye now. Bye. Hey, waiter. Oh, no. Waiter, come on over here. Hey, Joe. Yes, sir. You better go over and see what that man wants. Hey, wait. I, I was fixing to clean this table off, Mr. Green. Joe, take care of him first. Yes, sir. I'll get somebody else to clean the table. Well, it's about time. What's the trouble? I told you I wanted these eggs turned over. Oh? So you take him back. And you just be quick about it. I ain't going to sit here all day. But all the good things that we've got to eat and you order eggs. Never mind what I order. Just take them away and bring them back done right, you hear? All right, all right. And don't take all and day with bring coke. I don't have enough work to do. Yes, Andy. The man wants his eggs turned over. I ain't got time. You better. He's pretty mean about it. I don't care how mean he is. What do you order eggs for anyway? We ain't serving breakfast. He's half drunk. Maybe he thinks it's breakfast. All right. Here. 
There, they're turned over. Take them back to him. Oh, no, no, Sandy, now, you just make him mad. He wanted them cooked more. I turned them over like he asked, didn't I? No, but... He uh, won't know the difference. Well, maybe not, but what if he does? Then tell him to go eat someplace else. Okay, Sandy, but I, I don't think that you can fool him even if he is half drunk. Oh, where was I? Oh, yeah, one steak. Beans. Potatoes. What do you want? That was awful smart, what you done. I told you it'd make you mad. Nobody fools me like that. Now, you wanted your eggs turned over, didn't you? I'll show you what I think of your eggs. <laughs> you? Oh. Sandy, now look what you've done. That'll teach him to shove his eggs in my face. Ah, but you could have killed him with that skillet. Uh, throw some water on him and get him out of here. You know, wait a minute. What? Sandy. He's dead. What? You killed him. Yeah. Oh. Look, uh, don't tell nobody about this. Are you crazy? I mean, for a while. Uh, give me a half hour. I've got a horse over at the stable. They'll never catch me. What, 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 uh, Sandy? Say goodbye to Hank Green for me. Three decades of travel, keen observing, frontline reporting of virtually every world crisis, and a natural-born flair for word artistry. These are the prime assets of one of the great veterans of CBS News, Mr. Lowell Thomas. Monday through Friday evenings, Lowell Thomas offers the latest news in detail and depth, plus his own witty seasoned comment on each story. There's no substitute for experience. Indeed, no substitute for Lowell Thomas, when it comes to news in full sound color on CBS Radio and this station. And come Saturday night, whet your appetite for inside stories on show business with CBS Radio's Mitch Miller Show. Top names of show business beat a well-trodden path every weekend to Mitch Miller's lair. You hear their plans, their dreams, the backstage shop talk that makes this weekly program fascinatingly informative. Remember, on most of these same stations Saturday... The Mitch Miller Show. I swear I just can't believe it, Mr. Dillon. Sandy killing a man like that. He lost his temper, I guess. Poor old Hank Green sure gonna miss him. So's everybody else in Dodge for that matter. Including you, huh? Oh, my goodness, yes. But he's the best cook Delmonico's ever had. Maybe it was just an accident like that waiter said. Even so, Chester, he killed a man. He's got a sand trial for it. Mr. Dillon, that sun's getting mighty low. Can you still see the tracks? Yeah, they lead toward that hill over there. Let's move. What if we don't find him before dark? They'll have to sleep on the prairie and pick up his trail in the morning. Hold up, Chester. Boy, that's the longest, strongest out bunch of cattle I've saw in quite a spell. 
Not going to be much help to us. If it was a river, we could swim across. There's nothing to do but wait. Mr. Dillon, here comes one of the men. Maybe he saw Sandy. Hello. Howdy. Headed for Dodge? Yeah. Hey, you're a lawman. Dillon, U.S. Marshal. My name's Purdy. I'm trail boss of this outfit. What are you doing out here, Marshal? Looking for a man, but your herd cut right across his trail. Well, maybe he's seen us coming, done it on purpose. Well, he's smart enough. Well, I always like to see a man get away. Nothing personal, Marshal. I understand. How's the cattle market in Dodge, Marshal? Holding up, holding up fine. Good. This ain't no trail to ride for the fun of it. Well, I better get on up ahead and tell them to start milling the herd. It'll be dark before long. I don't like to push cattle after dark. I appreciate you not trying to cut through them, Marshal. We can wait. Say, uh, I hear there's a good cook in Dodge for a change. A fella come down the trail yesterday, told us about it. Yeah, there was. Wayne, he's still there? He's the man we're after. Oh. Well, the men were kind of looking forward to a good meal, Marshal. He killed a man, pretty. I'm sorry to hear that. I'll tell the men, but they ain't gonna like it, Marshal. I'll tell them I don't like it either. Yeah. Well, so long. You'd think Sandy King was the only good cook in Kansas. Well, you know a better one. Well, well I don't guess I do. Christian, you, you think we lost his trail? If we ever get across there, we might pick it up. We'll have to make camp and wait for daylight. On Saturday, April 29, 1961, the Gunsmoke crew gathered for the last time to record. They didn't know the show was to be canceled. The final episode aired on June 18, 1961. Although Gunsmoke's TV version with its different crew aired into the mid-1970s, the most influential radio western of the last decade of the Golden Age was over. Gunsmoke started on the air in 52, as we've mentioned, and network radio was beginning to die just at the time we were starting. I guess what I mean is that in those early days, if you were doing a series and the series was canceled, something else popped up. By the end of the 50s, and certainly by the 60s, when a show went off the air, that was just the end of that half hour or that hour or that two hour segment and it was filled with something else and that something else usually came from new york it was a sad period for those of us who were fond of radio and enjoyed radio and indeed had been brought up in radio There was now no network dramatic radio coming from Hollywood. There was a thing that was happening at that time, which I don't know whether anybody knows about, and maybe not even you, but at that time, stereo was just beginning to show its head. Now, Have Gun Will Travel, Gun Smoke, the radio shows that did exist at that time, were getting ready to produce radio drama in stereo. But because the decision had been made to uh, get rid of radio drama, that too naturally disappeared because the whole concept of radio drama was destroyed. And along with it, any new idea that might be uh, in waiting for us. 
and that was stereo. That's a pity. I like um, stereo and drama and radio. Stereo would be fantastic. The following year, on September 30th, 1962, CBS canceled Johnny Dollar in suspense. The network would have no dramatic shows in their programming block until 1974. But one of the biggest thrills I had in 1961, I was selected as one of a couple of guys to go to New York with hopes that we would replace Arthur Godfrey, who was going to die. But uh, he decided not to. <laughs> and we started scuffling around in New York. And one of the things that I got to do, and I don't know if you knew this, Fred, a director named Freddie Hendrickson at CBS was doing the last dramatic series out of New York. The same night, suspense went off the air out here. And yours truly, Johnny Dollar, went off the air in New York. And the end of the story is I played the insurance guy that hired Dollar, who at that time was played by Mandel Kramer. Begged to be on the show and did it. And it really pleased. The end of the show, the announcer was Art Hannis. And Joe Julian was the bad guy. And Mandel Kramer had him under gunpoint at the end of a dock. And Julian says, I've got a vial of nitroglycerin, Dollar. And if you shoot me, I'm going to fall and half of this city is going to go up. So Dollar said, well, you know, I can't let you go. So it's a Mexican standoff. There's a big pause, and you hear a pistol shot. Bang! And then, boom! And Hannah says, this is the CBS radio network. Oh, my God. The trouble with it is that the hired hands at CBS who ran the network right into the ground, in my opinion, had us all go back in and redo the end. So you heard the bang, boom, this is the last in the series of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring men, which made no sense at all. I thought the other one would have made a, the end of it, maybe. <laughs> yes. Boom, that's it. It's yeah. all over. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Mary, no! God, let like, go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, get away. no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. I won't go into uh, a long history of how it all began, except that it, uh, I think as in the early days, with any of us who began back in the early 40s, 
It was a question of graduating from high school, being interested in drama, auditioning around town, finding out that without experience you weren't ready, beginning with a little 250-watt station, WMBC, which was in the basement of the Boulevard building, working with Stormfelt's lovely building. Hey, right. (laughs) (laughs) Amos Jacobs. Right, and working with a group of, of people who would audition you, and if they felt you had any potential, you would work on a couple of shows for free, for experience. So I worked on uh, one show that was a takeoff of the old Opry House, The Villain and the Hero, and a show called Time Turns Back, which was the march of time in reverse. Later on, I was asked if I would like to do some part-time announcing on Sundays. I grabbed at the chance. At that time, I was running elevators at Kern's Department Store in Detroit. And this is a, I look back at what happened and think it, there must have been some strange things working at the time, because at the Christmas rush, at Kearns, I was put on, believe it or not, the Express to Toyland, which was the Lone Ranger Express. <laughs> believe it or not, and I, they had a, the mask and the whole bit. So uh, maybe it was predestined. <laughs> the American Broadcasting Company never overtook NBC or CBS in ratings or revenue during the golden age of radio. But by 1964, the only network drama airing was part of vignettes on NBC's monitor. That spring, ABC announced they were launching a new show. They hired former NBC writer Jack Wilson as story editor and assigned the series to directors Warren Somerville and Frederick Bell. Edward Byron, creator of Mr. District Attorney, was brought in to advise. Longtime Lone Ranger announcer Fred Foy joined the production. I worked at WMBC and really learning my trade working at it. And finally, before the war, auditioned at WXYZ, was accepted as a staff man, left there for the service, came back, and about three years later, they were looking for a replacement for Harry Golder, who was the narrator of the show. They auditioned an awful lot of people, and I was the lucky guy. It really was a lucky time of my life, because you worked with a group of people who would support you in every way, no matter what happened on the show. They were true professionals and marvelous at what they did, all the actors involved, all the production people involved. And I remember the winning this audition and then suddenly thinking, good Lord, here I am, I'm going to go on the air next week with a network show. I had not done a network. I'm going to be heard across the country. I'm going to be walking in that studio and all of these people who have worked this show and who I had remembered from the Maccabees building before the war, watching them in awe and seeing Brayson and John Todd and now here I was going to walk in as the new guy on the block and, and suddenly, uh, how would I be accepted? Well, the day that I did walk in that studio, I'll never forget because they greeted me as if I had been with them for the past 20 years. They helped in every way. And from that point on, I, it gave me the confidence to get through that first show with, with my knees shaking and whatever. It was a wonderful period, a wonderful time, and, and uh, it. I really regret that it isn't around anymore because there were so many wonderful people to work with and it was a delight. And those are, it's just, uh, it's wonderful that there are still people like all of you who remember and want to keep that memory alive and that's why I'm very happy to be here. The new series would be a weekday half-hour anthology called Theater 5 in honor of its broadcast time in the New York market. 
The show premiered on August 3rd with a play called Hit and Run. A month after its launch, 61 stations were carrying the transcribed series. ABC president Robert Pauley announced they were hiring a dedicated salesman to pitch Theater 5 in the country's top markets. The kinds of stories produced ran the gamut. Many plots were taken from contemporary newspapers. A funny thing happened along the way. As young actors turned to TV in the 1950s, radio child actors became extinct. In November of 1964, Broadcasting Magazine announced that ABC Radio was setting up a children's acting workshop. They were to teach kids how to perform for radio. Classes were 90 minutes long, and students would work with director Ted Bell. In January of 1965, ABC's radio department reported a 16% gross billings increase. That same month, actor Lee Bowman joined the team as executive producer. On May 4th, Theater 5 broadcast Incident on US-1. It guest starred James Earl Jones. Now just turn around real slow and don't get any stupid ideas, okay? Like you said, you ain't going to give me no argument. No argument at all. Now look here, kid. All right, mister... There ain't no need. I, I told you, there's a cash register. Help yourself. Five bills? Five crummy bills? Mister, I don't want no trouble. You can have whatever's here. Just take it and go, okay? Theater 5 presents Mr. James Earl Jones in Incident on US-1. yourself. There won't be much traffic night like this. You might be stuck here for a while. A friend of mine works here. I'm okay. Oh, you know, Joe? Yeah. <laughs> Makes the lousiest cup of java on the strip. Tell him for me. Above us, Smokey, all covered with dust. If the devil don't get you, then good luck. Hey! Donald, I'll be right with you. Yeah? I, uh... Well, what'll it be, kid? Cigarettes. You got any cigarettes? The machine right behind you. I mean, I, I need some change. Out of one. There you go. You, uh, gonna be wanting anything else? I'm closing up. Uh, yeah. Cup of coffee. How you take it? Heavy on the milk. Yeah, the first guy that's been in all night. I guess any guy that come out in a night like this would have to have a good reason, huh? I ran out of smokes. That good enough? If it ain't, I got a better one. Like running out of loot. Now just turn around real slow and don't get any stupid ideas, okay? Now look, uh, kid. The name is Mister Mister. Now look. I don't own this joint, and personally, I don't care if you steal the floorboards. I get paid one way or the other. Uh, stash the hardware, okay? I ain't gonna give you no argument. Oh, I know that. Now, just take off your tie and put your hands behind your back. I'm gonna lay this gun down long enough to tie your hands. But don't get any ideas about trying to grab it. 
That's right. Just just toss the tie on the counter. Now take off your belt so I can tie those big feet of yours. Then I'm going to stuff a few napkins in that big mouth and tie up the whole package nice and pretty with a handkerchief. Like you said, you ain't going to give me no argument. No argument at all. Now look here, kid. Hey, mister, there ain't no need. I, I told you, there's a cash register. Help yourself. Five bills? Five crummy bills? It's been a slow night. Don't put me on, man. Where's the safe? In the kitchen. But it's empty. Sure it is. Now, look, I'm telling you the truth. It's Saturday. The boss never leaves the take here over the weekend. You know, you ain't the first guy ever come in here with a gun. Come on, come on, the belt. Now, look, you want the combination? Okay, five to the right, left to five, right to five. Go see for yourself. I got plenty of time. Let's have the wallet. It's in my back pocket. Just hold that hallelujah position. Well, I'll see what we have here. Nothing there. Nothing there. Well, let's see what we have in this little old secret compartment. Ten bucks. Oh, man, you're loaded. Now, look, mister, I don't want no trouble. You can have whatever's here. Just take it and go, okay? In the minute I'm out of here, you're on the phone describing me to the highway patrol. How are you going to describe me, pops? Tall, thin, black? I'd be up to my armpits and fuzz before I got to the next intersection. All right, so pull out the wires. There's no skin off my nose. Sure, pull out the wires, Pop. And remember, I'm right behind you, and I'm getting nervous every minute. Now, just just give the wires a good hard pull. Oh, you, 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 you do good work. Now, back to the counter. We'll get you all nice and bound and gagged. You don't have to do that. If I'd known, what are you going to do while I'm out in the kitchen? What was it now? Five to the right, left back to five, and right to five again? Okay, have it your way. Only point that gun away, huh? You're shaking like a guy in a cold turkey ward. I'm cold, Pops. I'm so cold I feel like I'm never going to get warm again. That's why I'm shaking, Pops. I'm just cold. And, uh, why don't you have your coffee while it's nice and hot, huh? Oh, you care, don't you? Okay, get the coffee. And then we go back in the kitchen and you can open the safe. All right, here you go. Nice and hot. Oh, okay, now I'll call the shots. Stay away from that counter. Put your hands over your head. But, oh, my hands. You'll live. Okay, okay. So you're king of the hill. What you gonna do? Shoot you, maybe. Yeah, and what, what would that get you? Satisfaction, make maybe. Make you happy, huh? Yeah, sure. Look, Pops. The name's Mr. Kid. Look, mister, let me go, huh? What for? To try your luck further down the highway? I know you won't believe me, but I'm, I've never done nothing like this before, ever. Oh, I believe. I believe. Look, I just had to have some money. Join the club. You think you're the only guy ever needed money? Oh, jeez. Uh, hey, evening, oh, officer. Man, what a night. Yeah, sure is. Let me have a coffee in Danish and uh, some change for this. Got to make a call. Yeah, the phone's out. It's been out all night. The storm. Well, I'll give it a try. The rain's let up a little. I just tried just before you came in. It's dead. Well, I'll call from town. Here's your coffee. Well, what kind of Danish? Wife you... always worries when it's like this. Uh, I don't care. Prune. Got a paper? There's usually three or four papers around. There's nobody been in. Uh, all, all right, fella, hold it there. I was just going to feed the mud. Oh. <laughs> uh, you want anything else? Just holler. Okay. All right, old fella. It's coming. It's coming. Hey, kid. Uh, yeah? Is that today's paper in your pocket? 
Oh, yeah, today's. Uh, mind if I have a look? I just want to see how the dodge is made out. You can keep it. Oh, I'm, so- I'm sorry. That's okay. You didn't spill it. Mm. Uh, you live around here? Yeah. Yeah, in town. Uh-huh. Whereabouts in town? We just moved here. How'd you get out here? I uh, didn't see any wheels out front. I uh, hitched. What, to come out to a diner in the middle of nowhere? You got something against people? Let's see your ID. Uh, uh, hey, kid. You haven't got anything better to do. How about wiping up that mess on the counter, huh? Oh, sure, sure. Kids, <laughs> if I didn't tell him to wipe it up, he'd wait till it evaporated. Why didn't you say you worked here? You didn't ask me. That's right, I didn't. Hey, uh, where's Joe, by the way? Uh, wife's sick. He's taking the night off. Oh, sorry to hear that. Uh, tell Joe I'm sorry. Who shall I say told me? Tell him now, the cop. Yeah, I'll do that. More coffee? No, no, I, I got a call in. I'll see you. I don't figure you, Pops. I come in here and pull a heist to get a chance to turn me in, and instead you cover for me. I don't dig. Maybe I got my reasons. So are we square or what? Maybe I want the pleasure of taking care of you myself. Look, here's the money. Let's just forget it, okay? Okay, Pops? Then I'm still mister. Now you come on over here and sit down. That's right. Now, take off your belt. And remember, my hand's never going to be out of reach of that gun. Unfortunately, by the mid-1960s, network radio had undergone a transformation. Theater 5's half-hour time slot only allocated 21 minutes for story time. The other nine minutes went to news, station identification and local advertising. Even as ABC announced a deal to produce the show in Spanish, a cease in production was just around the corner. Look, mister... You're going to let me go, let me go. You had your chance to turn me in and you didn't. So what's with the gun and the belt bit? You're scared, ain't you? No, I ain't scared. You were scared when you walked in here. You were scared when you pulled the gun on me and you're scared now. Okay, so I'm scared. I want you to be good and scared. So maybe you'll think a couple of times before you do it again. I said, have it your way. I figure on having it my way as long as I got a gun and you ain't. Oh, man. What have I gotten myself into? What are you, some kind of creep? Your hand hurt? You care whether my hand hurts? I asked you a question. No, I scald it with coffee every day for kicks like I'm a masochist. Oh, yeah. Here, put some butter on it. Then hand over your belt. Hey, what are you going to do? Just do it, okay? Put the butter on your burn first. Oh, man, I sure pick them. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, well, save the tears. Don't give me none of your lip. All right. I'm sorry. I believe you. You care. All right. Now, put your hands behind your back. How old are you, kid? 21. 21 pushing 50. Yeah, I figured you for about that age. I got a kid myself. You got a kid? That's the best news I've heard in the last five minutes. Yeah, yeah, just about your age. Everybody's got a kid my age. I run into guys my age all over. Come on, what do you want to tie me up for? Now, you listen to me. 
I'm going to ask you some questions. And whether you walk out of here depends on your answers. You get me? I got your message a while back. This your first heist? No. A mad dog Earl. I asked you a question. Well, there's got to be a first time for everything, right? Wrong. Dead wrong. Anyhow, not for this. Now, look, I didn't figure you for a regular heist, and I can tell from looking at you, you ain't no hype. No, like I'm an oil burner, man. Thanks a lot. Look, I'm no chippy, mister. I figured that wasn't the reason you needed the dough that bad. My old lady needed an operation. I had to raise bail for my father. I wanted to put myself through school. What do you want from me? You're not so tough. You know, a lot of times a guy in trouble does things he wouldn't do otherwise. Okay, but this ain't the answer. What difference does it make why I needed the dough? I had to have it. I bet you ain't even handled a gun before. I've been around. Oh, sure, sure. Then how come I'm holding your own gun on you now? If I tell you I got a big deal waiting for me and I had to get the bus fare or I'd blow it, would you believe that? What kind of a deal? I know a guy who'll give me a chance to drive in the drag races on the coast. Oh, you're a race driver? I don't know. But I got a chance to find out. But I got a show there before Thursday, or I'll never know. How much do you need? Bus fare is 20 bucks. Well, you got 15. What do you mean I got 15? I got the change for the buck I bought smokes with. Five bucks from the till and the 10 you got out of my wallet. Hey, are you putting me on? Why would I do that? Wait a minute. Just let me get something straight. I come in here to rob you. You get the drop on me. You get a chance to turn me over to the boy in blue and you don't. And then you tell me to keep the dough. What's the catch, mister? You pull a stunt like you tried tonight, maybe you get away with it, maybe you don't. If you're lucky, you don't. You get caught. You get caught good the first time and you pay up then and there. Or you start running. You can't ever stop. You run a thousand miles and you think you're safe. Then you turn a corner or you open a door or you just look up sometime. And there it is. And you might just as well haven't run at all. You pay up in the end anyway. Only by then you owe so much you never get out from under. You spend the rest of your life paying off. Well, look, I wasn't thinking on making a career out of it. I know a lot of guys who were going to do it only once, just the one time, just to get them out of a jam, and it was easy. And the next time they got in a jam, and believe me, there always is a next time, they said to themselves, okay, just one more time, just one more time. Now, you don't believe me. Ask some of them. Any visitor's day. Well, you're right out of an old TV movie. Yeah, sure. Crime pays. But it ain't worth the price. You sure you ain't really Santa Claus? Ah, it's that mud again. He wants to go out. All right, fella, I'm coming. Wait a minute. I'll just undo your belt. And... Yeah. All right, old fella. All right, I'm coming. All right, old boy. There you are. Now, just stay off the highway. What? You still here? You really mean it? I mean, Pops, you something else. I don't get you. I could have cut out of here just now while you were in the kitchen. Why didn't you? Go figure it. I got a couple of things to say to you, and then you can go. I want you to keep one thing in mind, boy. Nothing stays bad forever. 
And if you look around long enough and hard enough, you'll find somebody to help you over the hump. Mister, you haven't lived where I live. I mean, in my skin, mister. There's nobody looking to help a guy my color over the hump. Man, they're lining up to push me off the mountain. Suppose you'd gotten away with it tonight and I had to report it. You know the description I'd have to give the cops? You spelled it out yourself. And you know what you'll be to people who read about it? Not just some kid who pulled a heist, but some kind of monster. You, you, you better go to join the march, man. Every time somebody like you gets into trouble like this, it puts your people right back to the starting line. And don't make out that you don't care, because you care, boy. Because you've got a lifetime to live in that skin of yours, and your kids will all have their lives to live in theirs. Yeah, you're telling me that unless you happen to be white, stay out of trouble. Nobody else gets into trouble. Oh, no. I'm not saying that's the way it ought to be, but I'm saying that's the way it is right now. And the way it's going to keep on being unless kids like you change it. I'm just one guy, mister. Just one tall, thin black boy. And you got to make that guy the best guy you know how. And other guys got to make themselves the best they know how. And other guys, and other guys. And you got to start 500 years ago to make up for lost time. Can I go now, please? Sure. Go. Uh, kid, I'm sorry I had to be a little rough on you, but I wanted to make sure you'd remember. Here's your wallet. All right, I'll take the wallet, but you keep the dough, like I said. You sure are something else. I'm not giving you the money. I'm just lending it to you until you get yourself back on the road. My first pay, 15 goes right in an envelope. Hey, what do I send it? Here. Joe's Diner. Uh, put down Fred. Fred. Now get out of here. The rain's let up. You shouldn't have any trouble getting a hitch to the next town. Yeah. Well, cool it, okay? And, uh, let's keep in touch. I mean, I'd, I'd like to write to you, okay? Maybe you'll write to me? Yeah, sure, kid. Sure. Don't hold your breath, punk. Shut up, Joe, or I'll have to keep you quiet with this knife. Ah, maybe I should anyway, just for kicks. Teach you not to try to get that cop in here after I told you to lay quiet. But you've been nice and quiet and cooperative, giving me the combination and all. Like you said, it's no skin off your nose, so I'll just forget it. If you just lay there nice and quiet. Ah, let's see, uh, five to the right... Back to five, and right to five. Ah, now let's see what we have here. Oh, not bad. Not bad at all. Nearly 400 bucks. That's ah, a lot of hamburgers, huh, Joe? Oh, uh, by the way, in case you got any ideas about trying to get loose and calling the cops, I think I ought to tell you the phone's out of order. You just plan on relaxing until somebody finds you tomorrow morning. Well, that's real considerate of you. I was going to ask to borrow your car anyway. Just to town, you understand. I'll leave it in front of the police station where they won't have any trouble finding it for you. Oh, yeah. Uh, you'll be getting 15 of this back. I lent it to a young kid with a real honest face. <laughs> on top of old Smokey... All covered with rust. If the good...
Hey, anybody here? Pops, kid? I lost my ticket book. I figured it must have fell out when I... Oh, here it is. Hey, what's wrong in here? Theater 5 has presented Incident on US-1, written by Hal Hackaday, directed by Warren Somerville. In the cast, James Earl Jones, James McCallion, and Robert Dryden. Script editor, Jack C. Wilson. Original music by Alexander Vlastotsenko. Orchestra under the direction of Glenn Osser. Executive producer for Theater 5, Mr. Lee Bowman. We invite your comments. Write to Theater 5, New York 23, New York. That's Theater 5, New York 23, New York. This is Fred Foy speaking. This has been an ABC Radio Network production. Two hundred fifty-six total episodes were produced before Theater Five went off the air on June thirtieth, nineteen sixty-five. ABC Radio continued to push the show in syndication to its affiliates, but they found no buyers to back the production of new episodes. It was the American Broadcasting Company's last attempt at radio drama. By the 1970s, most major diner builders had gone belly up. Those that survived were confined to the New York City area. By attempting to meld the blue and white collar dining experience, diners inadvertently put themselves out of business. Fast food restaurants sold fare at rock bottom prices. The menu boards hanging in McDonald's and Burger King are a theme taken directly from diners. And like with the automat, another contributing factor to their demise was inflation. In the 1970s, increasing food prices made the use of coins inconvenient. It was still a time before vending machines accepted bills. The era showed in the diner menu. Washington, D.C.'s Silver Diner introduced heart-healthy items in 1989. It's these kinds of changes that have helped remaining diners hang on. As the bicentennial approached in 1976, 
the Automat's remaining appeal in their core urban markets was strictly nostalgic. Oddly enough, it was trains that kept the Automat going. In 1954, the Pennsylvania Railroad introduced an Automat between Penn Station and Union Station, Washington, D.C. The Southern Pacific Railroad introduced Automat buffet cars in 1962. Amtrak converted four buffet cars to Automats in 1985. At one time, there were 40 Horn and Harrods in New York City alone. The last one closed in 1991. Horn and Harrods converted most of its New York City locations to Burger King. The last train U.S. Automat left service in 2001. Well, it's where we get off with empty bellies and full hearts. But don't worry, where we're going next, we can take everything with us. Oh, this is a hearty congregation, great old Greeks and grocer's clerks and young maids from Carolina looking for careers in New York City, and a shipping clerk from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, two emperors of China, and a mild professor from Ohio, and a girl named Rhoda with rheumatic fever, farmhands, and a locomotive engineer, and sailormen, and actors' agents, and a lissom tightrope walker thankful for a solid rope beneath his feet. Each is thankful in his fashion and his measure. I, for the earth and weathers, being a farmer, for the sun, which is good, and the rain, which is good, and for the rising before dawn, and the frosty air, and the placid animals, to whom I am the god of feed, the giver of the corn and grain. And I am thankful for the day, which is good, and the night, which is good. And for the hard one sleeping, which is also good. And I am thankful for the plow in my hand. And the tilling of the land in fall, for crops to be sown in winter. And the tilling of the land in spring, for the Indian corn of summer. I am not thankful for potato bugs, or the maize smut. But am, for the well-framed orchards and the grafted trees, and the gathered harvest. I am thankful for the day which is The kind of impression it made both in the listening audience of the general public and within the radio industry was extraordinary in that the president of Mutual Broadcasting and Competing Network sent a telegram to Paley saying, when radio distinguishes itself in this fashion, it is good for the entire industry, and we want to congratulate you and thank you. And, you know, that kind of treatment. The program originated here in California, but at New York, at 45 Madison Avenue, the headquarters of the network, a memorandum went around the following day saying, those of you who missed that broadcast last night, for those of you, we are suspending work for an hour between 3 and 4 this afternoon, and all of the audition rooms will be available to have that program piped into these rooms so that those who missed can hear it, and those who heard it can hear it again. Uh, you know, it was given that kind of treatment. Now, may I rise to thank the master painter of the year? Well, who's that? 
October. No louvre in the world is big enough to hold his landscapes. He is exhibited in every tinctured leaf and hung in every meadow. Have you seen his skyscapes? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, indeed. They say he mixes pigments out of elemental stuffs and ranges far afield. Did you know his greens come from a special patch of the Aegean? His reds from Yuma in the eyes of Bengal tigers and the powdered beaks of tropical toucans? His oranges are skimmed, they say, from surfaces of rising moons. Well, where do his tints of hazel come from? Well, hazelnuts. His plum colors? From plums. His fawn from fawns? Precisely. Is he not a marvel then, October? Yes, he is. Not worth a canticle? Oh, worth several. Here is one for now. Across the alley from the Alamo lived a pinto pony and a Navajo who sang a sort of Indian idaho to the people passing by. The pinto spent his time a-swishing flies and the Navajo watched the lazy skies. Next time on Breaking Walls, our road trip across Americana encounters faded greens, golden yellows, shimmering oranges, and auburn reds. You might as well drink it in. The harvest season is coming. They were swishing, not a-looking. They never came back across. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg, as well as From Hash House to Family Restaurant, The Transformation of the Diner and Post-World War II Consumer Culture by Andrew Hurley. It's from the March 1997 Journal of American History. And other articles, too, from Paste Magazine and Smithsonian Magazine. They thought that they would make some easy bucks by washing their and does and lucks. On the interview front, Parley Bayer, Conrad Binion, Norman Corwin, and Lorene Tuttle spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Parley Bayer. Jerry Devine, Lawrence Dobkin, Fred Foy, and Bob Maxwell were with Spurvac. For more information, go to Spurvac.com. William Spear spoke with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran from WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear this full interview and many others at goldenage-wtic.org. John Daner was with Neil Ross for KNPC. Frank Sinatra spoke with Arlene Francis, Walter Cronkite, and Larry King. William Conrad with Chris Lambesis, and Norman McDonald with John Hickman of WAMU for his Gunsmoke documentary. Selected music featured in today's episode was Theme from a Summer Place by Percy Faith, I've Got the World on a String and Why Try to Change Me Now by Frank Sinatra, The Venice Dreamer Parts 1 and 2 by George Winston, and Across the Alley from the Alamo by the Mills Brothers. Then they took this cheap vacation. The shoes were polished bright. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio drama set in 1835 New York City. It will be available everywhere you get your podcast and at burninggotham.com. A special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, please go to passdaily.com. 
I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. Breaking Walls episode 120 will continue our Americana series as autumn begins. We'll tell harvest stories fit for October with some of radio's best men and women. This episode will be available beginning October 1st, 2021, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until October 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 119, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. The alley from the Alamo, when the summer sun decides to settle low, a fly sings an Indian hi-de-ho, to the people passing by, across the alley from the alley.